now, from Hollywood, Romance. The first summer after high school graduation is a bright and wonderful time. Three long months of sun and sky and balmy nights and moonlight. I got to get even with John Dana. We were doing a romance, just two of us. That's the name of a show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Anyway, the very last speech of the show was mine, and it was long. It was about a half a page. And I believe that the very last sentence was... Yes, Hans, or whoever, I really do love you. Well, usually you look up and you act to the actors, but this was a long, involved thing. So I read it down to that last line, which I had memorized, and I looked up, and John Daner is standing across the microphone from me with his eyes crossed. I'm sure everybody listening thought that was a dramatic pause I was taking. (laughs) I'll get even with him someday. I haven't managed to do it yet. Oh, I got to tell one, too. And this was on romance. And we were going into, like, the second act, and they wanted to establish the fact that we were on a golf course. So we devised an ad lib, which was... Isn't that John and Roma Daner teeing off on the tent? Well, we so we giggled on the rehearsal and decided we'd better change the line. So for the show, we said, "Isn't that John and Roma Daner holing out on the ninth? That wasn't any better. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 101. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight the career of John Daner during 1958. In February of that year, Daner was cast in the title role of J.B. Kendall in Anthony Ellis' short-lived Western frontier gentleman. We'll focus on four episodes of the series which had a reoccurring character named Bell Siddons, a beautiful gambler and ex-Confederate spy. Although Frontier Gentlemen only aired for nine months, it has left a lasting impression on listeners in the years since. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Michael Hurley's 1994 version of Hog of the Forsaken, a fitting song for radio drama's dying days of the late 1950s when the adult western grew up. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. 
My career as an actor uh, has been spotty. I started out in New York in 1935. I starved my way through the Depression in New York as an actor. I came out to California in 1940, January. Went to work at Disney as mm -hmm. an artist. And I was an assistant animator on Bambi. And then I, I, I went into the Army, got out of the Army, was hired by KMPC. I went into radio, you see. He was born John Forkham on November 23, 1915 in rural Staten Island, New York. His father Leroy was an artist. His career allowed John to attend grammar school in Norway and France. John found that he too was a gifted artist, as well as an excellent pianist. He studied at the Grand Central School of Art in New York, while simultaneously getting into acting. Forkham's talent took him west. He found animation work at Disney before landing a job at KMPC. At the radio station, John did everything from dramatic work to newscasting. He later earned the Peabody Award for his coverage of the first UN conference. KMPC was such a part of my, my soul, my life. But I began when KMPC was a little, wonderful Spanish house in Beverly Hills. That's right, he was a private yeah. owner in Beverly Hills. Yeah, and he also owned uh, WGAR in Detroit, G.A. Richards. Dare I ask roughly the time period? Yeah, you know, this was about 42. And what were you doing there? You were in a newscaster? Or? No, I started out as an announcer. Then I became an actor of all things on a show called The Hermit's Cave. It was a staple. I played the hermit. He cackled a lot. Then I became a newscaster. Then I became news editor in 1942 or 43 around there. Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says that a report unconfirmed by a lie... John spent the last half of World War II in the Army. When he received his honorable discharge, he returned to California now using his mother Ella's maiden name. I drifted, just drifted back into acting. Every radio personality or person or who had been an actor or who was an actor in radio all wanted to be actors in motion pictures. I became an actor in motion pictures. I drifted into that business. At the same time, I drifted back into radio acting. Lawrence Dobkin remembered how difficult it was for an outsider to find Hollywood work. Uh, Hollywood radio, radio on the West Coast, 
was very closely knit. I remember working regularly in, on East Coast radio, and I told a group of people I was coming to the West Coast for a lot of reasons. Three or four of my good friends in New York radio said, you're going to be very hard-pressed to earn a living. They will not let you in. You're going to have a rough time. You don't know what a closed shop that is. It starts with the directors, the actors, but basically the directors and the writers have a very rigid attitude toward incoming talent, much more than New York. And I was getting this from uh, Ted DeCorsia, Santos Ortega. You know, the guys I was working with, I found that to be quite true. I came out from New York with my own series on ABC. I was starring in a show, Ellery Queen. I was the 11th or 12th Ellery. And the show provided me with, you know, a foothold, and I felt quite comfortable because I thought, they cannot ignore me. I am here doing a show every week, and they must hear it, and they must allow me entry and give me auditions, etc. Not so. It was enormously difficult. And Lillian's experience with Bill Spears saying, nope, is quite typical. I think it was Norman MacDonald not with Gunsmoke, but something else, who was the first West Coast director to allow me in to his normal casting procedure. And then Dwight Hauser, rest in peace, at ABC. After that, it became a little easier. But when Ellery... But Norman was not that entrenched. I mean, when we started, he was was sort of a beginner himself. That's right. And I think that helped. He was more flexible. But Daner had good timing. Thanks to William Paley's package program initiative, CBS was piloting dozens of shows. By 1948, he was a regular on the network, where a new crop of directors like Elliot Lewis and Norman MacDonald were joining old stalwarts like Bill Spear. On August 1st, Daner appeared on Escape in William N. Robeson's production of The Man Who Would Be King. Fed up with the everyday grind, tired out from the summer heat, Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are making your painful way over the great India desert, alone and dying of thirst, while behind you, pursuing you, are the fanatical Kafirs, who once bowed to you as king, and now call for your life. Tonight, we escape to India and two soldiers of fortune who pushed fate too far, as Rudyard Kipling told it in his famous story, The Man Who Would Be King. One Saturday night, it was my unpleasant duty to put the paper to bed alone. It was a pitchy black night, as stifling as a night can be in India in June. It was very still, save for the ticking of the clock above my desk, which seemed to shatter the black heat of the night as the hands crept toward 3 a.m. And then from the passage outside my door, I heard voices. Well, who's there? Only us. And who are you? Oh, so you don't remember us, eh? Mm, no, I can't oh, how say about that. How the I... Dotper border then? 
Jodhpur border. Yeah, and having the authorities turn us back for impersonating newspaper men. Newspaper men? And then there was the train. Yeah, off of which you had us thrown, if I remember correct. Oh, wait. That flaming red hair. That bald head. <laughs> oh, Daniel Dravitt and Peachy Carnahan. <laughs> the same. Well, what do you two want this time? If it's money, I haven't got it. And if it's a fight, it's too beastly hot. You can rest yourself easy, sir. Because we have come asking for naught except some information. We've been all over this country. And we've concluded that injury isn't big enough for such as Daniel and me. So, we are going away to be kings. Kings in our own divine right. What? Aye, we shall be kings. Yeah, we've signed a solemn contract. Each to help the other... And neither of us to look at liquor or women until we have become king. I've never heard of such a fantastic idea. Well, what do you want of me? Naught but a look at such maps of Kafiristan as you might have about. Maps of Kafiristan? That's where we decided to go. Well, don't you realize that not one single Englishman has ever gone into the Kafiristan mountains and lived at Mount again? You're a good deal more likely to become dead men than kings. Yeah, well, sure anyway, see. I don't believe you have the slightest intention of traveling a mile outside of Delhi. Then you should come down to the Sarai marketplace in the morning, down where the caravans leave for the north. Now look, look you two, I'm a newsman, not a nomad. Now why, why should I come down to that filthy pest hole? I'm not so sure that you're either. Well, what do you mean? You say you're a newsman, but here's the chance to see the start of the greatest story of all time. And you'd pass it up. Because you're too blasted lazy to get up that early in the morning. Come along, Dravot, me lad. Yeah, but if you should have a change of heart, come to the Serai in the morning and see whether we'd be liars or not. And so they left, those two lovable scoundrels. And I sat alone in my office, thinking, the kings of Kafir... Well, Escape was an anthology show. And the truly brilliant thinking of show business at the time... Since suspense was such a success, why not another show of the same kind? So Escape was pretty darn close to suspense, and very often we used the same material. The assistant director, who was Norman MacDonald for most of the Escape series, when I was doing it, the assistant director's function was to time the rehearsals, time the show, and while on the air, advised the director how he was running fast or slow, etc. And generally to take care of the mechanical end of the production. I used the finest actors in Hollywood. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. This time, a platinum wristwatch, a body on a lonely strip of beach... In a case of heart failure in a Beverly Hills garage, all added up to blackmail, 25 years old. And a killer who would never be caught. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. On April 11th, 1950... John Daner appeared in an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, noted because William Conrad subbed for star Gerald Moore. The pair's relationship went back to their days at KMPC. One interesting sidelight that Mr. Daner mentioned to me off the air was that he was at KMPC with the man who starred in Gunsmoke, William Conrad. They both worked oh, yeah. at KMPC back, back in the 40s. 42, 43. Wow, how about that? Yeah. Bill was, uh, he read poetry. 
<laughs> yeah. I can imagine that, though, oh, with yeah. that voice, that oh, he would yeah. be fantastic. Yeah. I bet he would have been. I yeah. bet he, he was Another great radio voice. Oh, we were, oh, gee, we were so innocent. We thought we were so great. Turn left at the next corner, Cabby. Okay. Boy, this Beverly Hills in the sunny afternoon is really something, ain't it? Yeah. Wide streets, classy homes. Boy, these jokers got it made. Some life. Nothing ever gets to them to bother them except the income tax, maybe. Yep. Here it is, mister. 8834 Beverly Road. What a joint. Yeah. Um, wait for me, huh? Sure, sure, mister. <laughs> The door was answered by a girl of about 16, a tall, slender girl with dark eyes, too deep for her years. Oh, come in, won't you? I believe Dad's expecting you. She led me across a living room as dignified as the lobby of a bank to a door that she opened. If you'll wait here in the library, I'll tell Dad you've come. The library of Stanley Towner, my new client, was as somber as his living room, except for one thing. Over a fireplace that half-filled one wall was a life-size portrait of a woman. A most beautiful woman. Could have been a painting of what the girl who had just left would look like in another 25 years. I was still staring at the picture when Stanley Tarner came in. That's a portrait of Margaret, my wife. We lost her one week ago today. I'm sorry, Mr. Tarner. Well, we'd been expecting it for over a year. The doctors had warned us, but... Even when you're braced for a blow like that, it... Uh, yes, I know what you mean. It was her heart, Marlowe. She was coming home from a shopping trip in Westwood last Tuesday evening when it happened. She had her own car and was just pulling into the garage here when the attack seized her. Catherine, my daughter, and I both heard her car hit the garage wall. We ran out and found her. The doctor did everything possible. But Wednesday morning, she was, she was dead. I'm, I'm sorry. It's all right, Mr. Tommy. I must tell you all this because the... The reason I called you here has to do with Margaret's death. I don't understand. I, I, I've I got to get Mar Margaret's watch back. A what? A watch? Yes, a wristwatch. It's, um... Uh, well, I'll try to explain. I loved my wife very deeply, Marlowe. Now that I've lost her, the most important thing in the world to me is the preservation of her memory. Can you understand that? Well, it's natural that you'd cling to things that remind you of her, Mr. Towner. Uh, now, what about the watch? It, it's lost. Somewhere in Camino Beach. You know where that is? Yes, a few miles below Redondo. Yes, that's right. Well, the day Margaret died, I had taken her watch with me to have it repaired. I went down the coast on some business, and on the way back, I stopped at Camino Beach for lunch. A place called the Trade Winds. You had the watch with you when you went in? Yes, in my overcoat pocket. I came out and got in my car and was halfway back to my office before I realized it was gone. I, I've i got to get it back, Marlowe. How much is it worth? In cash, about $500. But to me, now, it's it's worth 20 times that. Uh, what's the watch like? It's a Benarus, platinum, and set with emeralds. Mm -hmm. I gave it to Margaret on our 20th wedding anniversary. There's an inscription on the back... To Margaret from Stanley with eternal love. Now, I know that watch is somewhere in Camino Beach. Can you find it and bring it back here to me? There's nothing more you can tell me? Well, unfortunately, that's all there is. I'll do my best. 
But, uh, I can't guarantee a thing. By the early 1950s, Daner had appeared on the NBC University Theater, the Screen Director's Playhouse, Escape, and The Whistler. The horror story of all horror stories, for me, it was George Allen, wasn't it, who produced The Whistler? Okay. Didn't we have two shows, one for the West Coast and then another TC, uh, on separate days? No. No. Same, Same day. A few hours later, whatever the difference in time. I was into horses at the time. I did the show, I had the lead, did the show, went to the stable, saddled up, climbed aboard the horse, rode across the bridge, through the boondocks, up into Griffith Park, clippity-clop, clippity-clop, hours later, suddenly... The blood left my face. I said, holy God, I'm on the air. I'm sitting on a horse in the middle of Griffith Park. Now, what do you do? Nothing. You just clippity-clop back. Rush to the studio. Tell us the truth, you know. Accept that you say there was a... The horse got a pebble between his hoof and his shoe. George says, it's all right, John. Fine. We've covered you. Everything's okay. And I said, oh, God. Thank you. Thank you. It happened a second time. The same damn thing. Maybe six months later. On a horse. Blank. God, I'm on the air. Can you imagine? Why did you get away with it that time? Yes. And he... He kept hiring me. I, I gave him some excuse, and he said, It's all right, John. We're covered. Everything was fine. And I kept working for George. But a few minutes later, we rounded a corner of the place. And After the debut of Gunsmoke in 1952, Daner was a series regular. Like in the December 27th, 1952 episode, The Cabin. And I waited. Then I found it again. And the door came open, and the figure stood in the light. Who are you? Bring him in, L.V. Any man out in that weather's been made harmless. Get inside. Out of the way, L.V., you fool. All right, stranger, hands in the air. High. That's better. Unload him, L.V. Nice gun, Hack. Real nice gun. Shut up. Now take him down, stranger. You can come up to this stove now, but don't try nothing. I'll cut you in half with buckshot. He was a burly man with flushed cheeks and a wild red beard and a great shock of red hair. Even his hands and fingers bristled with it. He sat on a stool by the stove, a shotgun across his knees. And his eyes never left me. The other one, Alvy, had a body of an underfed boy, but he was completely bald, and his skin was tight and dry. He looked like a naked skull, and his eyes, well, something had touched Alvy. 
You look half-froze, stranger. You must have wanted something real bad to go out in weather like this. I never saw him around here before, Hank. In those days, it was an absolute ball. We'd do two shows on Saturday. We'd do one in the morning, go to lunch, and there'd be one in the afternoon. And the total, we'd probably start at 11 and be through by 3.30 or 4 or something like that. It was joyful. It really was. Everybody looked forward to coming to work. He spent much of the next six years appearing in a variety of Western roles on Gunsmoke. Daner had incredible range. He was able to play toothless drunks, dashing leading men, vile psychopaths, pillars of the community, and no-nonsense anti-heroes. Oh, they were the most happy because, for one thing, we all knew each other. Once the show was established, and uh, we were rather established as a group, we worked so well together, we knew what the other's reactions were going to be. And we felt at ease personally with each other. For instance, we'd come to work in the morning and we wouldn't get down to the first reading for an hour. We'd be sitting around with Danish and coffee, jabbering, having a marvelous time. It is from this kind of intimate relationship with the other actors, the other people, let alone being actors on the show, allowed you a tremendous inner freedom, a relaxation, a feeling of comfort, that there was no tension at all. In 1955... Gunsmoke's radio success in the television era led CBS and director Norman MacDonald to launch a second adult western called Fort Laramie. John Daner auditioned for the lead as Captain Lee Quince on July 25, 1955. Fort Laramie, starring John Daner as Captain Lee Quince. Tales of the dark and tragic ground of the wild frontier. The saga of fighting men who rode the rim of empire. And the dramatic story of Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. Sergeant Gorse. Yes, sir. Pass the word to dismount and unsaddle. All right, Captain. I'm going up on that little knoll. Maybe I can see Mr. Seibert's party from there. I'll be right back. Yes, sir. This mountain unsaddle, been grazed water. This mountain unsaddle, been grazed water. Daner was worried about being typecast in Western roles, and the lead went to Raymond Burr. But with no sponsorship, Fort Laramie lasted only 10 months before being canceled after the October 28, 1956 episode.
1957, CBS Radio saw a rise in revenue for the first time since 1950. For all of that year, Gunsmoke remained the only adult Western radio drama on the air. They recorded at the KNX Hollywood Studios on Saturday afternoons. One of the uh, nicest things of the Saturday morning table reading was when Parley Bear would arrive with two enormous boxes of goodies from Benish's Bakery, which was a marvelous bakery. Of course, everyone would always complain that Parley brought the wrong kind of torts or the wrong kind, which would drive Parley up the wall and Howard McNair would laugh. And, but anyway, it was a pleasant way to start out. And all of the members of the uh, both the casual and the regular cast were such professionals that they could kid as they worked without losing emphasis. It was released twice a week. It would be released first on a Sunday night and then re-released the following Saturday morning. We had a tremendous audience. As I recall, I think we were something like, because of the double show, we had an audience of something like 50 million people every week, which was fantastic. You know. In early 1958, CBS ordered two new Western programs to air on Sunday afternoons, replacing an hour of concert broadcasts. The first would be created by CBS director Anthony Ellis. The only background I can give about him is, is what I know about him from my personal experience, having met him, but only in Hollywood. I didn't know very much about his background before he arrived here. No, I didn't know. He was know English, that. you know. He's English, yes. And his mother was Effie Kalish, a pianist. As a matter of fact, she taught me piano. She came over here with the English pianist by the name of Solomon and brought her family and her husband, who was also her agent. Tony was very musically inclined, and music played a very important part in his, not only the production, but in the writing, in his mind. He wrote musically in many respects. Tempo meant a great deal. Dynamics meant a, a great deal to Tony. He was a very, very broad, very warm, very kind, Lovely, lovely man. A very sensitive man. Extremely sensitive, yeah. yes, absolutely. Ellis's new show would be called Frontier Gentleman. The title character would be an Englishman named J.B. Kendall. Kendall was a journalist writing for the London Times. He waved his way through the western territories of the U.S. in the late 19th century. Frontier Gentleman would be recorded in Los Angeles. Well, uh, Tony Ellis wrote it, directed it, produced it, everything, and... I think it was one of his finest efforts. I know this, that Tony liked that show better than any show he had ever done in his life. And I think it showed. And I was very close to Tony. And he would very often refer to that show as with great affection. It was one of those shows that I think was so well written that uh, it played itself. This is the story of the West that few people hear. The stories of our everyday struggles, shameful acts and triumphs. This is the Veiled West. <laughs> it's a shame your dog's sense of smell isn't as keen as a werewolf figures. Hey, now just a minute there. You can't talk to... Silence, Thrall. Don't speak to the mayor that way. That's better. What I meant was that the ranch was sold to another werewolf. 
They're surrounding the city now, Amos. I thought we had this under control. Dr. Eli Decker, it's wonderful to meet you, Happy. Tell me, is the Coyote Crossing Ranch a friendly place for us? Well, it's full of us. Even the lady who owns it, actually. Why don't you come down and meet everyone? Do you need a place to stay in town? Don't worry about us, Sheriff. I promise, we take care to make sure the town is safe. I'm sorry we bothered you, Miss Vera. If you ever need anything, you send someone for us and we'll come running. Well? Werewolves. Every one of them. Just like the other two ranchers. I have a feeling I can arrange something unfortunate. Listen to the story of the Old West that you've never heard before. Visit theveiledwest.com. Frontier Gentlemen debuted on Sunday, February 2nd, 1958 over CBS Airwaves. Television's most watched show was Gunsmoke with a rating of 39.6. Network radio programming had shifted focus from a decade prior. Back in 1948 with the radio industry enjoying its highest rated season, NBC, CBS and ABC used excess revenue from their slate of dramatic shows to launch full force into television programming. Ten years later, at the close of the 1950s, major network radio drama was on life support. Programming had begun to shift. That month, U.S. Radio Magazine reported that 55% of all peak listening now came from automobiles. With more than 36.5 million U.S. cars equipped, the automobile radio had suddenly become standard. Formulas for measuring these ratings were underway, but ineffective. In the winter of 1958, CBS's Sunday programming from New York called for news reports at the tops of most hours. Concerts and music programs filled the dial between 11.30 and 2.30. When Frontier Gentlemen signed on at 2.35 p.m., it was the network's first scripted dramatic offering of the day. However, CBS chairman William Paley believed in radio drama, and with Americans on the move, many of the medium's best, like William N. Robeson, were involved in the fictional shows still on the air. I am not one who suffers fools gladly, nor accepts much brown-nosing. I want talent. I want ability. And I will go to lengths to find it, and I will also go lengths to put up with it, as sometimes is necessary. In 1958, the famous director was in the midst of a three-year run at the helm of Suspense. Suspense was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of Suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear did not create Suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of... Uh, adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, money for cast, money for orchestra, etc., etc. To give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York for production in New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians. Suspense. 
and the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Almost every malefactor starts yelling, I was framed, as soon as the law puts the arm on him. And sometimes they have been. Nobody will ever know how many inmates of state's prisons are there because of circumstantial evidence. Of such a one is our story concerned. Listen, listen then as Charles McGraw stars in The Silver Frame, which begins in exactly one minute. Another visit with Joe and Daphne Forsythe. CBS had found multiple sponsorship for the series in late 1956. Fourteen months later, it was airing on Sundays at 4.35 from WCBS in New York and at 4 p.m. from KNX in Los Angeles. All right, but where's the sponsor who will put... Now, get this. Well, I'm talking about 20-year-old figures. Who will put $5,000 into a superb super production. That's all it would cost in radio. There isn't a sponsor in this country but $5,000 a week. He'll put $250,000 into a film. He won't put $5,000 into a radio show. Let him give me the $5,000 and see what happens. You won't get any audience. But those you get will buy your product by the barrel. They'll be so grateful. And now... The Silver Frame, starring Charles McGraw. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. They check me out with the $10 bill and the $22.50 suit that the taxpayers give you when you leave. I took a quick look back at the place where I'd left two and a half years of my life in a cell. Just because a Southern California district attorney had to have a pigeon in a hurry once. Had to bad enough to frame a guy and get a conviction his favorite way. Circumstantial evidence. I started walking. Just walking with no walls or iron bars or guys with sawed-off shotguns to stop me. And somebody yelled at me. It was a reporter. A little rat named Malvin Lester who'd crucify his own mother to get a headline. I kept on walking. See, see, wait a minute. I got nothing to say to you or the crummy rag you work for, the morons that read it. All right, all right, can't you let bygones be bygones? I'm just a guy working for a living. Beat it. All right, all right. So you got nothing to say to me? So, uh, what do you say to $1,000? What about $1,000? So, you say you were framed. How'd you like to get even? With who? The district attorney. All those wise guys down there in L.A. How'd you like to frame them for a change? For that, I get a grand? <laughs> sure. That's what I'm telling you. Come on. Let you buy me a drink. I still think radio is probably the greatest entertainment medium ever invented. It made the audience work. And I think television audiences don't have to work, and that's why they fall asleep after the time. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I really love it. And I really think that the commercial people, you know, whoever they are who say whether we work or don't work, are making a big mistake. California, where you drive enormous distances, I have that radio on all the time. And I'd like to hear something good. It imposes on the actor the necessity to create everything, to create the sets, to create the costumes, to create the expressions, to create everything. And I think one of the great drawbacks of television is that so much of it is just sort of visualized radio shows where they ought to really write television shows. From Hollywood, it's time now for... 
Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is Vincent Price. I'm calling from Hollywood. Oh, sure. My name's Shirley Temple. Now, who is it and what... Really, Vincent Price? Do I sound like Mickey Rooney? Well, no. But now, tell me, Mr. Price. Now, look, the name is Vincent. Okay, Vincent. What can I do for you? Johnny, I have a little problem in connection with one of my paintings insured for $100,000. $100,000? You call that a little problem? This painting has suddenly disappeared. Oh, I see. What's the insurance company? Four State Mutual. Oh, well, they have a small branch office right there in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know, but Bert Parker, the man who sold me the policy and should take care of this matter, well, every time I've called him, he's been out. And I learned just this morning that nobody knows where he is. Okay, Vincent, I'll grab the first plane. Bob Bailey. In the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, Act One of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. At 5.05 p.m., as a cold winter sunset overtook the East Coast, Bob Bailey signed on with Vincent Price guest starring in Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Four State Mutual Insurance Company Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the price of fame matter. Expense account item one, 178.50, plane fare and incidentals, Hartford to Los Angeles. By the time the big silver constellation made its landing at the International Airport, it finally dawned on me that I hadn't arranged with Vincent Price about where and how and what time I'd meet him. But as I picked up my luggage, I discovered a hungry-looking crowd of autograph hounds running about the tall, gracious man I was looking for. Oh, sure, sure. I'm glad to. Look, but just one at a time, will you please? I can't very well. All right, there, there you are. Now I have to oh, be friendly. Oh, just one more, please. Huh, Mr. Price? All right, if you insist. Here. Best wishes from T. Willie Rocking Horse. Huh? <laughs> How are you, Johnny? Oh, great, but I didn't Johnny? expect... Johnny? Johnny who? You mean to say you folks don't recognize Johnny Dollar? Oh, no, wait a minute. boy, Johnny. Give them all. I'll wait for you in my car. It's right over here at the curb. Yeah, but look, will you? Hey, right here, Mr. Dollar. No, 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 I'm nobody. Please. By the time I got away from that mob, I felt as though I'd been run through a ringer. But we finally took off in Vincent's car and drove to his beautiful home up in one of the canyons west of Beverly Hills. Nestled among the trees with spacious lawns and well-kept gardens, it's furnished in the most excellent taste. I know expert, but to say that I was impressed by the extraordinary works of art in that home would be the understatement of the week. Engravings, prints, fine sculptures, but most of all, paintings. And even to my unpracticed eye, all of them were, well, magnificent. Here's a little thing I picked up in London, Johnny. It's called The Old Man in Red by Goya. Wow. Yeah, I thought original oils by him were found only in the big museum. Well, I've been pretty lucky in getting hold of some of these. Yeah, you've known what you were doing, too. Mm. You like this one? It's called Fright. It was painted by uh, Kenneth McManus. Uh-huh, beautiful. Beautiful. Like all the rest of them. Thanks. How about this one here at the end? Uh, Night Wind by... Uh... I'm sorry, Vincent, I can't make out that name. You don't have this one lighted like the rest. No, that's to maintain its somber mood, Johnny. Oh. 
And that's what made it possible for the substitution of this copy to go undetected. That's a copy? Yeah, and that's my problem. The $100,000 night win by Jean-Baptiste has been stolen. This was left in its place. Oh, I see. It's not a bad copy, probably worth a couple of hundred dollars, but it's hardly a genuine Baptiste. Well, when did you discover this uh, substitution, Vincent? When I returned from a lecture tour early last week. Oh, that's right. You've been traveling all over the country lecturing on art, well, haven't you? Let's call it talking about art. Hmm? Tell me, have you notified the police about this? Well, I suppose I should have. Well, I felt that was Bert Parker's job. And you haven't been able to reach him over at Four State Mutual. Well, I told you on the phone, he hasn't been in his office for some time. Vincent, have you any theories about who might have done this? Yes, I, I'm afraid I have. Well, why do you say it that way? Very few people knew I'd gotten hold of this Baptiste. Only some close friends and a couple of art experts. So? And the place was not broken into during the time I was away. Of that, I'm sure. Well, go on. Well, the family and servants kept very close track of anyone who entered the house while I was gone. You have a list? Yes, I, I do have a list. Here. Good. Alfred R. Hawkinson. That's an electrician who came to do some wiring. He wouldn't know a Rembrandt from a Mickey Mouse. Anne M. Schumann. He's a music teacher. Loves music, hates paintings. What about delivery boys, people like that? Oh, they never get beyond the back door. Go on, read on. Hmm? That next one is Ben, the gardener. You can forget about him. And Bert L. El- huh? Yeah, Bert Parker. He was here twice. What for? Well, ostensibly to check on some of the paintings he'd insured. The first time, on the 11th, Mrs. Price was with him while he poked around. On the 15th, she had to leave to keep an appointment. And just when he left the house, nobody seems to know. Oh, brother. Are you thinking the same thing I am? Now, look, Johnny, I haven't known Bert very long, and... Well, he seemed like such a harmless little old fuddy-duddy. As for his knowledge of art... Yeah, I wondered about that. Well, he was perfectly satisfied to take my evaluation on the two or three things he'd insured. So... Well, Johnny, I I may be all wrong. Vincent, a thing like this may only happen once in a thousand years. In any event, the company will certainly make good your loss. Well, with a work of art, it isn't really the money that counts. And Johnny, listen. Look, I may have jumped to a completely unjustified conclusion about Bert Parker. Oh, yeah? Sure. Well, let's go down to his office and see. Although Vincent Price was a major film star, He'd long been one of the only contract actors allowed to work in radio as much as he pleased. That's Vincent Price in just a moment. The extraordinary thing was the care that went into radio shows. There was a kind of perfection about the radio actor that was extraordinary. It was a very small group of people. And I always felt myself enormously privileged that I was able to join that group because they didn't take everybody in by a long shot. It's a lovely thing, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. And Johnny, it is worth 100000 Oh, I'm sure. But the truth of the matter is I paid only $300 for it. You pay? Oh, no. That's the fact. <laughs> well, you've got it back thanks to your own efforts. <laughs> thanks to your being the front man. If I'd tried to get it back myself, these people would have run like scared rats. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, just tell me one thing, will you? Why aren't you an insurance investigator? Well, you know, it's every man to his own. <laughs> well, after all, why aren't you an actor? Uh, let's get out of here. 
Disposition of Bert Parker? Well, that's entirely up to the company. Vincent, now that he has the painting back, doesn't care one way or the other. However, from the company's standpoint, well, it's not the kind of black eye that's good for you. Expense account total, including incidentals and transportation back to the States, $2,341. Remarks? Well, to Vincent Price, my eternal thanks. Not only for the help on this case, but most of all because it's given me a chance to really know him. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Bob Bailey's daughter, Roberta, was a teenager during Hollywood Dramatic Radio's last days. Why, it is painful. It, those were very good times. And like I say, afterwards, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York, and when they tried to convert to TV, so many of the radio personalities couldn't make the conversion. And until other jobs opened up, like the sponsor job, there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill. Especially, like my father, had nothing to fall back on. He'd been an actor all his life. And by the time his radio show was over, he was almost 50. He weighed about 150 pounds, stood about five foot nine and a half, and they looked at him on television and said, you're not Johnny Dollar. And he said, but I am, I've been. And they said, no, no, we have to get a six foot tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part. When Johnny Dollar signed off, the FBI and Peace and War signed on from New York, after which dramatic programming shifted back to the West Coast. Radio's remaining Hollywood directors like Jack Johnstone, Elliot Lewis, Anthony Ellis, Bill Robeson, and Norman MacDonald would cast famous character actors for union-scale wages. Gunsmoke started on the air in 52, as we've mentioned, and network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a, uh, a series and the series was canceled, something else popped up and you were told to start preparing for a show called such and such, which would go on the air next Tuesday. There was always something to replace the show that went off the air. By the end of the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, when a show went off the air, that was just the end of that half hour or that hour or that two hour segment and it was filled with something else and that something else usually came from new york it was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio and enjoyed radio and indeed had been brought up in radio and it was not sour grape throughout the 1950s with at-home listening declining gunsmoke remained radio's most popular show by 1956, it was airing on Sundays at 6.30 with a repeat the following Saturday at 12.30 p.m. The dual broadcast pulled a rating of 6.5, radio's highest, and that number doesn't factor on the go listening. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad. 
the story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Well, come on in. The door ain't locked. Oh, forevermore. Like a body could open the door for theirself. Good morning. Oh. Well, come on in, mister. Want to see the marshal? Well, he ain't here just now. He rode out south of town a little piece. Something I can do for him, mister? Are you a good man? How's that? They say the marshal's a good man. Are you good likewise? <clears throat> no, I don't rightly know. I can tell you one thing, though. I expect I just do about the best I can. Can you open the lockup? Well, of course I can, but I don't know what that's got to do with it. I want you to unlock it. Well, now, that just don't make sense. Ain't even nobody in there. I want you to put somebody in it. Oh, well, that, that's different. Where's he at? What's he done? I want you to lock me up. You? You wanted some words? You giving yourself up, are you? My hands are clean. Well, then what in the world? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Well, of course. My... But I can't just go throwing somebody in jail without they've done something. There's probably a log in there. There's the Lord's law. Well, I know that, but what's that got to do with Thou it? Thou shalt not kill. Yes, but you said yourself you ain't done nothing. It's heavy upon me to kill a man. I want you to lock me up to stay my hand. Look here now, mister. You don't have to kill nobody if you just set your mind to it. These ways locking you up won't do no good. What about when you come out? It will be safe by tomorrow. You will have left town by tomorrow. Well, now, I don't know that I can go around putting... Oh, Mr. Dillon, you sure are a sight for sore eyes. Uh, hello, Chester. What's the matter? It, it's him, Mr. Dillon. He, he wants me to lock him up. He claims he feels like killing somebody. Oh, anybody in particular? Well, he ain't said. I, I was just fixing to ask him. Oh, never mind, Chester. See to my horse, will you? I don't take care of this. Yes, sir. What's your name? Are you the marshal? I'm the marshal. I'm called Jacob Leach, marshal. I'm a God-fearing man. What's this about locking you up? It's upon me to kill a man, Marshal. I want to be locked up till morning so I'll not be tempted. Oh, and who would tempt you? A man of sin. Does he have a name? His name is Radford. Radford? Ollie Radford, a man of sin. Well, what's he done? What have you got against him? He lives with sin, Marshal. He shall be punished with everlasting destruction. That's not exactly your job, is it? I pray that I may not be the instrument of the Lord's destruction. I ask that you lock me up, Marshal, until Radford has left town tomorrow. 
All right, Leach. I've had a hard ride, and I don't feel much like arguing with you about destruction. Yeah, I'll lock you up for the night. Come on over here. All right, go on in. You've acted wisely, Marshal. Maybe. Well, let me tell you something. After you get out of here, you go right on leaving the destruction business to the Lord. Or to the law. The sinner shall surely be put to death. Yeah. Well, so shall the murderer. You might remember that. Just listen a minute. It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, it's about a military hero. The executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea and... You either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. Somebody ought to set Jack Benny straight about how to make a movie because he's at it again. When you join him later on today, CBS Radio's misguided matinee idol... Although the last new episode of the Jack Benny program aired on May 22, 1955, between October of 1956 and June of 1958, CBS aired the best of Benny in his familiar Sunday slot. With the home insurance company paying for the time, even repeat broadcasts of Benny's show had a rating high enough to attract a sponsor. Henry Morgan is host on the fast and funny guessing game, Says Who?, his star-studded panel of experts spark one laugh after another as they try to identify memory-teasing mystery voices. Following Jack and Benny, stars, Henry Morgan's comedy panel show, Says Who, took to the air. You think you are hearing my voice, but unless you know how to use your gramophone properly, what you are hearing may be something grotesquely unlike any sound that has ever come from my lips. Can you identify that voice? If you can, you may win a jackpot of wonderful prizes in radio's new, exciting, fun game, Says Who? Says Who debuted alongside the Stan Freeberg Show on Sunday, July 14, 1957, as part of a week in which CBS Radio added $765,000 in new billings. And here to help us play, says who, is the famous voice of the present, John Cameron Swayze. Says who would be sponsored every other week by Look Magazine at the CBS Company Convention in November of 1957. Upper management predicted that radio was becoming fashionable again. 
With Frontier Gentlemen being developed, veteran sound artists Tom Hanley and Bill James were brought in. They specialized in Western drama, and by 1958 were considered the best in the business. Jerry Goldsmith, then a CBS staff musician, was tasked with creating the musical score. Cut one, Frontier Gentlemen opening. Anthony Ellis handling all production and direction. The only other question was who would play Kendall. They have some rather strange customs in the West. There's a town in Montana Territory where it's against the law to carry a gun. The sheriff lives by this order, but other men can die because of it. Ben Wright auditioned on January 29th, but something was off. Frontier Gentlemen. I did every accent known to man, South Slobovian, East Yemeni, and I did it with absolute perfection because nobody knew what they sounded like. <laughs> Not a soul. The director or producer said, well, can you do this and that? And he said, of course I can. And you did it? And he said, beautiful, because he didn't know what it was supposed <laughs> to sound like. The next day, John Daner recorded an audition for what would become the debut episode. They have some rather strange customs in the West. There's a town in Montana Territory where it's against the law to carry a gun. The sheriff lives by this order, but other men can die because of it. <laughs> Frontier Gentlemen. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual accounts. But as a man with a gun... He lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. Now, starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. The journey had taken 98 days from St. Louis. I had come by riverboat, up the Missouri, the little stern-wheeler climbing, churning, scuttling over 2,000 miles of sandbar and rapid, then into the lonely wastes of another, swifter stream, the Yellowstone, until we finally docked at South Sunday in Montana Territory. My ticket had cost $300, which left me about 50 in my pocket and the slim hope that there'd be a letter at the express office with my remittance from England. Hey, 
Afternoon. Just in off the boat? Right. I wonder if there's a letter for me. J.B. Kendall? Uh, Kendall, uh... Oh, any trouble on the way up? I hear Sue been kicking up her heels. Sitting bulls, making big medicine again. Don't sound good. Uh, we didn't see any. Kendall, Kendall... English, ain't you? Yes, yes. Uh, figured by your talk. Uh-huh. Don't see many of you in these parts. No. No, there's nothing for you, mister. Oh. Uh, you're sure? It's rather important. Uh, from England. No, nothing. Maybe tomorrow on the overland, though. Uh, say, you planning to stay a while? I think so. You better get and register, then. Register? Over to Sheriff Clanton's office. There's a notice on the wall. Maybe missed your attention. All strangers to South Sunday will, within one hour of arrival, register at the office of the sheriff or be prosecuted. That's Clanton's orders. Surprised you missed the signs. They're all over. Uh, thank you. Oh, that's all right. Wouldn't want to see you in any trouble. This ain't the healthiest town in the territory, not for strangers. Oh, any particular reason? Well, oh, excuse me. Afternoon, Mr. Farley. Uh, this here's Mr. Kendall, just off the boat. I was telling him about registering. Well, that's a good idea. Uh, Dick Farley's one of the sheriff's deputies. Helps keep South Sunday law-abiding. Big job in these times, yes, What's sir. What's your business, job. Mr. Kendall? Oh, you might call me uh, jack-of-all-trades. I might. I do a little writing for a London newspaper. You know, an Englishman's view of the Wild West, that sort of thing. We don't take to strangers. Oh, really? Shame. I've been looking forward to my visit. Yeah. Well, now you've seen it, you know what it's like, so supposing you get yourself back on the boat and try up the line to Rosebud of Junction City, huh? <laughs> I don't think so. Now, if you'll pardon me, I'll register at your office. You carrying a gun? No. Get your hands up over your head. Fire! Hmm? Oh. You just hold it. Just so. All right. That your baggage? Yes. Pick it up. I beg your pardon. I said pick it up. Oh. Now, come on. Tell me, Mr. Farley, how did your town get its name? How should I know? I thought you'd take an interest as a matter of pride. Civic pride, you know. Mr... I don't like the way you talk or what you say, so you just shut your mouth. All right, inside. Where you been, Dake? The JB stood for Jeremy Bryan. He was a remittance man, banished from England by his family, an ex-soldier of the wars in India, kicked out of the army for refusing to testify at the court-martial hearing of an officer he believed innocent. J.B. Kendall. I uh, understand I have to register. Yeah. Anthony Ellis was himself an Englishman. Writer, huh? He incorporated period slang and formed a picture of the West from the perspective of a man able to get inside. Well, as a matter of fact, the name intrigued me. His adventures came in all forms. He met nameless drifters, outlaws, and real people from history. Uh, from what I understand, there might be trouble brewing with the Sioux and the Cheyenne. I'd like to be here if it blows up. What's the name of your paper? London Times. You ever hear of a dake? No. Mister, all kinds come to these here parts. Now, I ain't exactly calling you a liar, but... Quite all right. One can't be too careful. Uh, here. My papers. Uh-huh. J.B. Kennel. Pretty subject. Yeah. London Times. That's what it says. Here, you see, Dake? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it says. 
Uh, other strangers get off the boat with him? No, just him. Uh. <clears throat> well, you sound all right to me, Mr. Kendall. Now, you just remember, I got a set of rules. You live by them while you're here, you'll get along. That seems fair enough. No man except them authorized by me carries a gun in South Sunday. That way we don't get a bunch of crazy licked up miners and the like shooting up the place. It seems the usual thing for a man to be armed in most places. It ain't usual here. It's again the law. Oh, I see. You get yourself fixed up at the hotel? And not yet. Well, you're going over to the Empire, Mr. Kendall. You tell them Frank Clanton send you. They'll take care of you. That's very good of you. Take, take a look at his baggage. What, you're going to search my luggage? That's right, mister. No guns in South Sunday, not worn or hidden. That's a law. I haven't got one. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I like a peaceable man. Yes, sir, a fellow like you might think of settling down here in South Sunday. Quietest little town in the Montana Territory. It's an opportunity for a man. I'll keep it in mind, Mr. Clanton. Ain't nothing in his bags, Frank. Well, now, Mr. Kendall, you enjoy your stay here. Anything you want, you just ask me. And I'd appreciate it, sir, if you put my name in your paper. Whatever you want to say is okay with me. The supporting cast was played by the Hollywood stalwarts like Harry Bartell, Lillian Byeth, Lawrence Dobkin, Jack Moyles, Jeanette Nolan, Virginia Gregg, Vic Perrin, Parley Bear, Howard McNear, and Sam Edwards. You know, I had some of the best parts I've ever had that Tony Ellis wrote and directed. He used me a lot on the sustaining shows. And whenever it went commercial, he would never use me. And I, I often wanted to ask him about that. I wanted to ask him, but I didn't have the nerve. Why is it that I'm... I can have these wonderful roles on the sustaining shows, but not on the, not on the commercials. Uh-huh. That should have told me something. I... No. <laughs> By the summer of 1958, most sponsored network shows had multiple advertisers paying costs. While CBS attempted to attract a sponsor, they footed the entire bill for Frontier Gentlemen. When The Best of Benny went off the air for good, on June 29th, CBS shifted Frontier Gentlemen into its 7 p.m. time slot in New York with an episode called Gambling Lady, guest starring Gene Bates. I met a gambler in Wyoming Territory and learned something about the terrible war between the states. Frontier Gentlemen. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. Now, starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. I returned to Cheyenne in Wyoming Territory, I found that a new and thriving establishment had opened during my absence. I first heard of it over a drink with Carrie Chase, the editor and publisher of the Cheyenne Daily Press. 
We were standing at the bar in the Gold Room Saloon, and I remarked on the fact that the adjacent gambling rooms seemed unusually quiet. Been like this over a week now. Oh, any particular reason? I guess you haven't heard about Madame Verdi. No. Quite a woman. Sailed in here ten days ago, Denver, they say. Got the biggest painted freight wagon you ever saw. And some kind of a omnibus for her to travel in. Well, I tell you, no lady's boudoir was ever decked out any better. Is she a medicine woman? Oh, no, no. Gambling. Set herself up near the depot. A big tent. Roulette, faro, anything you name. Brought in her own dealers, case keepers, spindlemen. Day after she arrived, posters went up all over town. And since then... <laughs> well, the local boys aren't very happy about it. Taking all their business, huh? Just about. What sort of woman is she? I tried to get an interview. Not much luck. Doesn't like to talk about herself. But I tell you, there's a story there. I'd like to get it. Yes, sir. Quite a woman. Mm. Mm. Pretty? Pretty and a lady. A real belle. Hmm. Madame Verdi. Is she foreign? I wouldn't say so. Why don't you go down and take a look this afternoon? I'd like to join you, but I got to get my editorial out. Maybe I'll see you later. Right. I found the tent, a huge affair, a hundred yards or so from the railroad depot. Inside, a crowd of men thronged about several tables, and I recognized a number of wealthy cattlemen whom I had met a few weeks earlier at the Cheyenne Club. Then I saw Madame Verdi. She was rather small, quite lovely, wearing a very simple white and gold gown which set off her long, jet-black hair. The effect was striking, as I was sure it was meant to be. She sat behind a small table dealing a game called 21. As I approached, she looked up, caught my eye for a moment, then returned to the game. I stood watching. Cards? Yeah, you can hit me again, ma'am. Oh, that's just fine. You, sir? I stand. Page 21. Well, I'll be no a dirty... Sh- if you please, gentlemen. Yeah, I ain't never seen such luck as uh, Buck the Tiger against Tinhorn down Abilene. And when he got through, I didn't have a tail feather left. The luck of the cards. Yeah. You want to sit in, sir? Uh, well, uh... There's room for another. No, no, thank you. 21 isn't exactly my game. We have roulette, barrow, dice, poker. As a matter of fact, I came to see you. Yeah, well, you ain't alone, mister. You see, there ain't nobody I'd rather lose to. Go them out again, madam. What's your business? I'm a newspaper man. I write for the London Times. Well, you English fellas sure are filling up the territory. <laughs> it seems like there's as many of you as the Sunnies here. Are we boy. playing or are we talking? Cards, gentlemen. <clears throat> uh, you can hit me now, ma'am. Uh, and again, a uh, soft, nice and soft. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll stay on this. Hit me. No, that ain't luck. Well, let me see them cards. Oh, now, you take it easy. Hell, look here. I've been losing for better than two hours. I say that ain't luck. Unless you want me to shoot up this place, you just hand over that money you've been cheating me on. 
Put your gun away. Yes, I would if Mr. I were Mr. Listen, you. you're willing to buck out and smoke. You just keep out of this. All right, Madam Verdi, I got a thousand gold laying in front of you. Now, you just push it over and I won't no, be any... No, you Mister, you know, for an Englishman, you got a real likely fist there. <laughs> hey, look at that. He's asleep and as gentle as a dead cat. Is everything all right, ma'am? Yes, thank you, Ed. Take him outside and throw a bucket of water over Yes, ma'am. Tell Charlie to take over from me. Yes, oh, you leaving, ma'am? For a little while. Well, I'll be waiting for you. <laughs> I still got a ways to go before I'm cleaned out. Perhaps you'll let me stand you a drink, sir. Uh, no, thank you. It's a little early for me. I'm grateful for what you did just now. But really, it wasn't necessary. He never would have left the tent alive. My boys are always on the watch for things like that. I didn't know. What do they call you? Kendall. J.B. Kendall. Will you come over to my place, Mr. Kendall? It's quieter. That show took on a personality of its own, very much like Gunsmoke did. A lot of the same actors worked, and this was a sort of a CBS group more than anything else. At that time, about that time, I think they figured there were approximately 1,500 members Mm -hmm. of AFRA, and about 400 of us did all the work. I think that would be a maximum at 400. 300 more than that. I know in my own case, I was doing at one time and another as high as five shows a day, having somebody rehearse for me at NBC. See, they were all very close, the studios. Do two or three one-man families. (laughs) (laughs) I'm overwhelmed, Madame Verdi. I must say I've never seen anything like it. My home on wheels. I'm a traveling woman, Mr. Kendall. But I see no reason to give up my comforts. Won't you sit down? Thank you. Are you fond of birds, Mr. Kendall? I don't think I've ever thought of it one way or the other. This is my pet, Trinket. She's been with me for three years now. I don't usually talk to newspaper men. So I understand. Mr. Chase of the Cheyenne Press told me he didn't have much luck. Some newspaper men have been rather unkind. Hmm. I think that readers in England would be fascinated by you. What, for example, would fascinate them? The obvious. That a young and very pretty woman is running the most successful gambling establishment in Cheyenne. She bears the somewhat unusual name, Madame Verdi... It used to be Madame Vestal. That was in Denver. Mm. And before that? I was Mrs. Newt Hallett. My husband was an army surgeon. He died in Texas of yellow fever. Oh. After that, I tutored for a while at an Indian agency. Then I found that I possessed an uncommon skill with the cards. There now. You have my entire history. Or at least something to start with. Um... Where were you born? I think that's one thing that I don't care to tell you. Where were you reared? And that's another. (laughs) Does the sort of thing that happened before in the tent occur very often? No. 
Do men take advantage of you simply because you're a woman? To the contrary. I usually take advantage of that fact myself. <laughs> with dire results, I have no doubt. <laughs> well, I imagine that you're not particularly popular at this moment with the gambling hall owners here in Cheyenne. I'm only interested in popularity, Mr. Kendall. And it fills my cash box. I stayed on for another ten minutes odd and learned very little more beyond the fact that the full name she now used was Lurleen Monteverdi. Highly theatrical, she knew, but felt it was part of her work. When I once again attempted to probe into her past, she excused herself rather abruptly and returned to the big gambling tent. I walked over to Carrie Chase's office and told him about the interview. It wasn't until later that I learned what was taking place at that same moment in a room behind the Silver Dollar Saloon. Several men were present, and their faces were grim. They were listening to the Silver Dollar's owner, a man named Jonas Root. Now, boys, boys, I call this here meeting because we're all up against the same trouble. That trouble being one calico queen named uh, Madame Verdi. Well, ain't, ain't, ain't no call now for us to keep on trying to cut each other's throats to get customers for our places. Because she's got them all. That's the way it sits. Now, boys, here's what I figure. What we need now is an association of gambling parlor owners. Which association is made up of all of us here in this room. And we got a purpose. Which purpose is to get rid of said calico queen named Madame Verdi. All right, now lay off your tongue all, Jonas. We know that. <laughs> you said you got it figured out how to do it. Now get yeah, on with it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. All right, I got it whipped, I think. Now, all of you may be wondering who this here fella is I got sitting by Yeah, me. well, who is he? He calls himself Jack Wolcott. Now, he's got something to say to you. Well, you see, it's this way. I just got robbed up to that Madame Verdi. She took me for a thousand and twenty-one, and when I caught her dealing off the bottom of the deck, she had a boy jump me. Well, they sure made a mess out of your face, mister. Well, I aim to make them pay for it. Now, now, fellas, we don't want no crooked gambling from no she-gouger in Cheyenne. And there's something else. I've been doing some inquiring these past days since you've been here. Now, I found out... Yes, sir, I found out something's going to get Fancy Nelly run plumb out of here. Jonas, will you haze the talk? Now, what do you know? Madam Verdi's real name was Belle Siddons. Belle Siddons? You mean Belle Siddons? Yeah, you know the name, Soapy. She's that Confederate spy, Belle Siddons? She is the same. Well, I was on guard duty in Grant Street Prison back in St. Louis when they brought her in. Boys! That's that red woman got Grant's troops cut off. Joe, Finch, uh, Big Al, you remember the raid on the Memphis and Mobile Railroad, don't you? All right, now, I say that what we got to do is pay a call tonight on Madame Belle Siddons' verdict. And we'll ask her nice and polite to roll her wheels out of Cheyenne. Yeah, I agree, but supposing she says no. Well, then maybe we ain't so polite. Maybe then we take her out riding under a cottonwood leaf. Yeah, that's it. In a moment, we return to Frontier, gentlemen. 
You hear a lot about America's new leisure these days, but take a look at almost anybody's weekend, including your own, and you'll find everybody busier than ever at all sorts of projects and outdoor activities. Lawrence Dobkin was one of the leading characters in this episode. Neither Afra nor Aftra, and finally not SAG either, chose at any time to operate like a hiring hall. That was a deliberate decision. The issue has been raised, the question has been raised within every guild I've ever belonged to, and that includes the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, and the IA, because I, I used to carry a stagehands card when I was young. Only the IA operates like a hiring hall, and the others do not call themselves unions. They are guilds or associations, and if the cast is relatively closed on some show or other, that's... A production decision. And now we return you to the Anthony Ellis production of Frontier Gentlemen. Neither Chase nor I had any idea what was brewing among the members of the newly formed Association of Gambling Parlor Owners. I sent a message to Madame Verdi asking her to dine with me at the Rollins house that night. You know, I didn't think you would. Join you for dinner? Why not? I don't know. Perhaps you strike me as the type of woman who never allows pleasure to interfere with business and that there's only room for business in your life. As a rule, yes. Well, I'm flattered that you make an exception tonight. I'm curious about you, Mr. Kendall. Oh? Uh? You're not the type of man I would expect to find as a newspaper correspondent. <laughs> Is there a type? I think you know what I mean. I'm not sure that I do. The way you managed that man this afternoon, something tells me that you could have done quite as well with a gun. Oh. Well, I've learned a little since coming to the West. <laughs> and what did you do before coming here? Well, a little of everything. You don't like to talk about yourself? There's not much to tell. Really. I was in the army in India. Spent five years there. Went home to England... And I didn't find it home anymore, so I got a job through a friend of mine who works on the London Times. I send back articles on life in the American West. They buy them from me. I've met Englishmen who sound a great deal more English than you do. It's quite possible. I haven't cultivated the accent for some time now. You sound bitter. What happened in England? I didn't say anything happened. You didn't have to. <laughs> must be your card sense that gives you an insight into a man's thoughts. I'm seldom wrong. That's why I sit on the other side of the table. You see? It's so easy to ask questions. Not always as simple to answer them, <laughs> is it? No. Will you have more champagne? Mm -hmm. Please. If I were asked to gamble on it, I'd say there was a woman in England. You'd be half right. You look so stern, Mr. Kendall. Don't worry. There'll be another. There always is. Did you find another man after your husband died? No. But I imagine I will. You find me terribly callous? Mm, not at all. Refreshingly honest. I'm afraid I shall have to be going back to the tent now. I'll take you. I've enjoyed myself very much, Mr. Kendall. So have I. Have you any money? 
Well, a little, yes. You decide to play roulette. I suggest that you bet on the black. Up to a thousand dollar payoff, it can be quite lucky. <laughs> Thank you, no. When I gamble, I'll take my own chances. Years later, Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell remember the importance of the sound effects men. And boy, you'd be amazed at how many laughs the sound effects men used to get. They were, oh, they were performers, too. They were performers. Too. I mean, Ray stars. Erlenborn. When you Ray Erlenborn was a big star. When you, say, right. when you say laughs, how would they get laughs? Oh, well, I mean, because the an studio audience. audience was there, but when, when they had to open that closet door, just the audience would get hysterical oh, preparing sure. for the door opening, and then it went on for at least a minute. i gotta, I got to ask you if this is true. I've always heard this, and I've never known if this was actually the way they did it. Uh, was this a fire... Yes. Sounds like it to me. Yeah, but cellophane instead of... <laughs> they use cellophane, cellophane instead of paper. Instead of lime paper. Yeah. We're short of cellophane in studio. But, but you see, they don't manufacture cellophane anymore. Yeah. You know you what? Know. They don't. No, they, they cellophane, really actually. But I think you've got to go to a specialty store. But it was cellophane. Store. Yeah, now, of course, today, today here, for example, at our studios at Westwood One, if they need sound effects, they go to a pre-taped library, which sure. is probably computerized. Right. Sure. That's right. And uh, you don't have to do that anymore. What were some of the other sound effects? I just did my little... Oh, uh, they thunder. Thunder was made with a big piece like of sheet a, metal. A, right, like and, tin. Uh, yeah, like tin. Or the kind of stuff right, they use right, in, a, right, in a roofing right. material. Now, gunshots. And I don't remember. Gunshots, were they really gunshots? Gunshots. There were guys who did them vocally. And they vocally? were also... Yeah, yeah. They were also... Yes, actually. They also... Act, some, some people could do them vocally, but then there was a whip. You know, like a long oh, that's stick. that's right. And you'd shake that down in front of the microphone, hit, and that would be your gunshot. Like a gunshot. With I live... Know, you know, and, and ricochet. Walking, <laughs> Jim. Walking was really walking. Yeah, you walk in a bucket with gravel or sand. Right in it. to represent the sidewalk oh, or the whatever you were walking. It was a fine evening, and instead of taking the carriage she had hired, we walked toward her place. Neither of us spoke much. We had come to the end of the street when we saw the group of men waiting outside the big tent. They turned as we approached and walked toward us. I felt a sinking sensation in my stomach as I recognized one of them, the man I had hit that afternoon. All of them were armed. Good evening, Madam Verdi. Good evening, gentlemen. Waiting to try your luck with me? Well, now I'll tell you, ma'am, we're... we're waiting to talk to you in private. That fellow, he's with her. He's one of them that pistol whipped me. He's a shill. Let's go inside the tent, gentlemen. I'll buy you a drink. No. We'll do our talking out here. Jason, will you oh, get on with it? Uh, ma'am, we represent the Cheyenne Association of Gambling Parlor Owners. You ain't a member. No, I'm not. And we got a complaint that you're not running your games clean. The association don't like that. So we took a vote, and we agreed that you've got to be out of this here town come morning. Where did you hear that Madame Verdi runs a crooked game? From him? Yeah, from me. Besides which, she ain't no Madame Verdi. I know you. Maybe you don't remember me, but I seen you, Bell Siddons, when they brought you to the St. Louis prison in chains. We don't want no Confederate spies in Cheyenne. I don't know anything about that, but she wasn't cheating. Your friend here decided he couldn't afford to lose anymore, so he drew his gun on the lady and tried to get it back. I hit him. That's all there was to it. You're a liar. And if I don't choose to leave? You ain't got no choice, Belle. You get, or you're going to find yourself looking through cottonwood leaves, which is what should have happened to you anyway. That's the way we handle your kind around here. Uh, there won't be any need for that. 
Miss Siddons is going to be sensible, ain't you, ma'am? There's a lot of folks in Cheyenne might not take kindly to you being a Confederate spy and everything. Might even take matters out of our hands if they found out. You gentlemen seem to be holding the cards. That's the way to look at it. Hey, Kendall. Who's that? Oh, a newspaper fella, Chase. I thought that was you. Evening, ma'am. Evening. Oh, how are you, Rude? Chase. <laughs> you come over to see how she does it. I hear your places aren't making out so well. I thought I'd take a spin at the roulette table, Madam Verdi. I should be honored, Mr. Chase. Why don't we all go in together? No, no, I gotta be getting back to the silver dollar. You won't forget our, uh, our little deal, will you, ma'am? No, I won't. We went into the tent. She was tight-lipped, pale. Four hours later, at exactly two o'clock, she called a halt to the play and the tent was cleared. Chase, flushed with whiskey he had taken and the hundred dollars he had won, joined me at her table. <laughs> a fine evening, ma'am. You're a credit to Cheyenne. You run a square game, and I'm going to say so in my next editorial. Thank you, Mr. Chase, but you needn't bother. I'm leaving in the morning. Oh, now you can't. You can't do that. I'll be heading for Deadwood. Why, ma'am, you could spend the rest of your life around here. I'm afraid not. Well, sure you can. Isn't that so, Kendall? No, that ain't so. She's getting out. But before she does, she's giving me back that thousand. Ain't you, Madam Verdi? I very much doubt it. Go away now, before you get into more trouble. Now you keep out of this, mister. I'm talking to the lady. How about it, Madam Verdi? You lost fairly. And I say I was cheated. You know, folks in Cheyenne can do a lot of damage this place. Maybe to you if they found out about certain things. Get out. I will. When I get my money. What's it all about? What? Oh, he doesn't know, huh? Well, Mr. Chase, you can print it in your paper. Print what? Well, do I get it? Yes. No. No, it doesn't matter. Let him talk. The war's over. People won't mind. People do mind, Mr. Kendall. I'm afraid they're going to go on minding for a long time. I wish somebody would tell me what people will talk about. I'll ask her. You're a scummy little rat. Maybe. But I was a rat that fought for the Union. I wasn't a stinking... Shut up. Don't try. Here's your money. What's the matter, mister? You scared to draw? Just waiting for you. You're the one who's going to do the killing. Remember? Belson, dirty, stinking Confederate spy. Belson. Yes. Oh. I'm sorry you had to do that, Mister Kendall. I am too. I'll be gone in the morning. Thank you for your friendship. Why not stay? 
Mr. Chase. I think she better go. Thanks to Miss Siddons, I lost my brother in the Memphis Mobile raid. I'll wait for you outside, Kendall. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Jeannie Bates, Lawrence Dobkin, Stacey Harris, Harry Bartell, and Jack Crucian. Join us again next week for another report from The Frontier Gentleman. Bud Sewell speaking. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. I was challenged once by Bill Robeson, who is, you know, one of our finest radio directors right. ever, producer, director, and a fine writer as well. But 
he had interviewed me and said, what is this now that you double? And I said, oh, yeah, I can do, you know, a couple of voices. He says, can you talk to yourself? And I said, well, I guess, why not? Well, he brought me on a show with Elliot Lewis and had me play five parts. And he kept waiting for me to complain, and I never said a word. I just marked all the parts. And a couple of them were just one-liners. But still, one time I had three characters on the same page all talking to themselves. Me. <laughs> that's not off. easy. I no, bet that's We got off easy. the air, and he said, I guess you can double. <laughs> just like that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. After Bill Siddons left Cheyenne, J.B. Kendall met a young herder with the sharpest eyes in the territory named Kid Yancey, and a female justice of the peace named Amy Robinson. He tangled with the Jesse James gang and broke bread with a retired skinner named Nebraska Jack, who had several indigenous wives. Kendall met a cat salesman, and in Deadwood a teenager who learned to shoot with 46 caliber converted Remingtons and made himself into the fastest gun ever seen. Hey, well, look here. Hey, boys. Come over here, have a look-see. Hey, what you carrying there, son? Buffalo guns. <laughs> hey, boy. Don't you know packing them great big old heavy things like make you a bow-legged for your time? <laughs> Crowley, you just shot up my paw hour back. I aim to kill you for it. Kill <laughs> me! You kidding that there mealy mouth tailor down the street? Boy, I might have known. Mealy mouth little son. Mr. Crowley, I'm going to put my gun back now. Next time I unshuck it, you better draw your own self, because I ain't going to be doing no fancy trick shooting a glass out of your hand. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Boy, you sure are fast, that's for sure. <laughs> Jack Crucian was by then one of the most talented character actors on radio. In 1960, he was an Academy Award nominee for his role as Dr. Dreyfus in The Apartment. Mildred, he's at it again. My start was at CBS Radio here in Hollywood doing a sustaining show, we used to call those. It meant you didn't get right. sponsored, right? Not right. sponsored. Yeah. It also meant you didn't get paid in those days. Oh, really? $3? No. 1938? Oh, I got gore. And, <laughs> and it was 13 weeks. A wonderful experience because I got to play a different foreign character every week. And at the age of 16, that was pretty exciting. How about me. that? That's pretty, this kid here, are you kidding? She was a baby. Yeah. I was at least, I was a graduate of high school. Once again, I met a lady named Bell and learned about a gentleman named Archie McLaughlin. This 
taking place in Deadwood, Dakota Territory. Frontier Gentlemen. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. In just a moment, we will bring you this latest report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Throughout the week on CBS Radio, Walter Cronkite and Bill Downs report the business news. They bring you up-to-the-minute information on price trends, employment, marketing situations, and the stock market. It's information that can help consumers save money, can help businessmen make money. Join us on CBS Radio regularly as most of the stations bring you the business news reported by Walter Cronkite or Bill Downs. Now, starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. tent had been set up on Main Street in the heart of what is known as Deadwood's Badlands District. The last time I had seen it was two months earlier in Cheyenne. It was a gambling establishment belonging to a rather extraordinary woman who called herself Madame Verdi. To be exact, Lurline Monte Verdi. Owing to the fact that during the war she had been a Confederate spy, she no longer used her real name, which I knew to be Belle Siddons. It was mid-morning, a comparatively quiet hour in Deadwood as I strolled toward the tent. Off to one side, I saw the wagon that had been converted into a type of omnibus and which served as Miss Siddons' living quarters, complete with lace curtains and satin cushions. At that moment, the wagon door opened and she stepped down. Mr. Kendall! Well... Mr. Kendall, how nice to see well, you Well, I'm again. delighted to see you, Madame Verdi. Well, I was thinking of changing to Vestal, but it's still Verdi, Mr. Ah. Kendall. Unless we're alone, then I think I'd rather you call me Belle. <laughs> Thank you. When did you arrive in Deadwood? Last night. The tent has only just gone up. And I hope you have better luck than you had in Cheyenne. Where there's gold fever, there's more than enough business for all. I don't think the gentlemen of Deadwood will object to my presence. <laughs> when will you open? Tonight. But what about you? Really, I've never expected to see you again. What have you been doing? Oh, not much. Writing my articles, sending them to London, hoping they'll be printed. I should have thought you'd have joined the gold hunt in the Black Hills. <laughs> no, no, I'm afraid I'll never make a successful prospector. Oh, what a strange man you are. Will you come with me to the tent? Yes, of course. I want to make sure the tables are ready for tonight. Then perhaps you'll take me to breakfast. <laughs> We should have some. Very good. Mm, thank you, no. I had breakfast two hours ago. Huh? Is that a reproach? <laughs> Not at all. I hate to get up early. I always have. As a matter of habit, it doesn't make much difference. Do you know that you've been staring at me? Hmm? Is there egg on my chin? <laughs> no, not at all. Forgive me. It's only that I'd forgotten how attractive you are. One doesn't very often see an attractive woman in these parts. 
I'm not sure whether to be flattered or not. You have a charming smile. It reminds me of the Mona Lisa, a little obscure. One can never be sure why she's smiling. She's probably holding a pat hand. <laughs> you enjoy gambling, don't you? I don't think I ever looked at it that way. Enjoyment. I gamble because it's the most convenient way to make a good living. Oh, I think there's more to it. Curiosity isn't healthy in the West. Haven't you learned that yet, Mr. Kendall? I'm a newspaper correspondent. Is that why you're interested in me? Oh, you are a lovely woman who says one thing with her lips and something altogether different with her eyes. Now, that intrigues me. Mm -hmm. All women do that. No, they don't. Not in Dakota territory. <laughs> They're a little more obvious. <laughs> you know, in some ways, you're like my husband. You would howl it. I think I told you about him. Yes, yes, you did. He was a very direct man. I think he would have liked you. Uh, don't turn around. There's a gentleman wearing a badge coming over to the table. Huh? Morning. Good morning. Name's Boone May. I'm a peace officer here in Deadwood. I take it you're Madam Bertie, ma'am. That's right. Mind if I sit down a minute? Not at all. Thank you. You're that newspaper man, uh, Kendall, ain't you? Yes. Hey, you was pointed out that's how I knew, Savvy. Well, ma'am, I seen the posters your boy's been putting up around town, went over to your establishment. They said where I'd find you. It isn't against the law, is it? I mean, putting up posters? Oh, shucks, no, ma'am. I, I just figured I wanted to get acquainted, is all. That's very friendly. Don't you think so, Madam Verdi? Very. Well, now, I'm a real friendly fellow, madam. Always like to know who's new to Deadwood. Uh, of course, seeing you and all, I'm kind of surprised that a lady sets up business in the Badlands. That's the roughest territory in town. You know that? I'm not a lady, Mr. May. I'm a gambler. I was told that my situation is the best corner on Main Street. That's why I took it. I'm paying a very high rent. I hope that I haven't been misled. Well, now, ma'am, if it's business you want and you don't care who gives it to you, you'll do fine. I thought you ought to know, though, that uh, there's some pretty mean boys will be visiting you. That's where they go, to the Badlands. Then I hope they'll become patrons. Yeah. <clears throat> well... I reckon I'll be coming around tonight, kind of see everything gets off to a good start. I shall look forward to seeing you, Mr. May. Yeah. Well, that's good, because I got a feeling uh, you being a woman and all, well, you might need some protection. Now, if I can help, you just give a holly here. I'll be there. You're very kind. So long, ma'am. Mr. Kendall. Mr. May. Now, I wonder why. Why? What did he really want? Didn't you hear? I'm a woman. He wants to protect me. You don't believe that? No. Do you think he knows about you being Bell Siddons? Possibly somebody from Cheyenne has brought word? It's possible, but I don't think so. <laughs> I hope not. I want to stay open for a few nights before they throw me out of Deadwood. If you don't mind, I'd rather like to come tonight. It'll be worth seeing how Deadwood reacts to Madame Verdi.
Lillian Byatt and Lawrence Dobkin remembered the fluidity of radioacting. I think probably the best thing about the radio days was that as an actor you could stay fluent. You were in and out, the job was done. The ease and speed of radio, the absence of commitment, the absence of time spent, you could have all the thrill and all the challenge of a full performance with four rehearsals and the air show. Mm -hmm. And you didn't spend eight hours driving to and from location and getting in and out of wardrobe and waiting for the young actors to learn how to do their parts. Well, the characters all knew one another. You had played opposite one another. You, we played well together. I mean, we just knew what to expect. You worked other... all the bugs out of it. Yeah. But that was true on other shows, too. If you'd worked with the same people a number of times on other shows, you knew that you could insert a sigh or a laugh or whatever and not throw them. Yeah. It just... It was just the natural thing to do. On most of these same stations. Edward's reception of Madame Verdi will long be remembered. She stood on a board and was carried through the entire town on the shoulders of four strapping miners. It was a precarious balance, yet she contrived to appear quite regal and an extraordinary woman. The tent was open for business and immediately became filled to overflowing. Belle took her seat at the 21 table and was besieged by a crowd of men willing, anxious to lose their fortunes to the gently smiling dealer. I was standing at the bar drinking a beer when I felt a tap on my shoulder. It was Boone May. Say, hey, uh, come on out a minute. I want a word with you. All right. Oh, bitch down, gents. Some crowd, huh? <laughs> hey, Mr. Kendall, are you a good friend of the madam? I knew her in Cheyenne. I'd say we're a fairly good friend. You want to do her a favor? It depends. And tell her to play it straight. She can stay in Deadwood. I'm not sure I understand. Well, now I'll tell you. You see, me and my boys, our job is to watch out for the gold shipments. Now, you take some of them stage drivers and shotgun boys guarding the gold, they get a drink too many in them, and, well, they like to maybe talk some too much. Savvy? No. Well, like maybe when a gold shipment's due to pull out of Deadwood. Well. Suppose that talk gets in the madam's pretty ear. Suppose she passes it along to somebody. Suppose somebody holds up a stagecoach carrying a box full of gold, Sammy. I think so. There's fellas in that tent right now, a dozen or better. Bad medicine. I've seen them watching her figuring the odds. Johnny Bull, Collins, Laughing Sam, C.C. Clifton, Archie McLaughlin. They'd make it worth her while to talk turkey at the right time. Maybe a split on the tape. Oh, now I see what you mean. And you want me to tell her not to do business with these chaps? That's what I mean. Well, couldn't you have told her the same thing? I could. I reckon coming from you, it'd mean a sight more. But why? 
Oh, mister. I've seen the way she looks at you. And when a female gets soft in the eyes, she'll listen to one man more than another. She'll listen to you. The way she looks... <laughs> no, my friend. I'm afraid you're mistaken. Say, I'm willing to make a proposition. You tell her, see. Any of that wild bunch try to deal her in on a hold-up. If she gets the word to me first, I'll see she ain't forgotten. That company's setting out the gold to take care of her. Savvy? I savvy, but I'm not your man. How come? I don't know her the way you think I do. <laughs> You're quite wrong about her feelings for me. Mm -hmm. Mister? Mm. You couldn't teach a setting hand a cluck. Very possible. But if you have business to discuss with her, I suggest that you do it yourself. I left the peace officer, Boone May, and went back to my hotel. My next two weeks were taken up with the story of a fabulous gold strike located a few miles from Deadwood. I didn't see Madame Verdi again until the evening of my return. I was in my hotel room sorting some notes. Yes, of course. Won't you sit down? I was afraid you might have left for good. No, I went up into the hills. There's been a new strike. I heard about it. Why didn't you come back that night? I saw you go out with Boone May. I was tired. Oh. He talked to me, you know. Did he? He wanted to make a deal. Seems that certain information in Deadwood is worth a lot of money to both sides. The gold shipments? Yes. It's amazing what a man gives away when he's drunk. Well, have you made any deals on either side? Not yet. I wanted to talk to you first. Why? Because you're the only man I've wanted to talk to since my husband died. Money means a great deal to you, doesn't it? Yes. I've never considered living without it. Or with less of it? You sound like a preacher, Mr. Kendall. <laughs> Do I? What difference does it make whether I deal with McLaughlin or Boone May or both? The road agent, Archie McLaughlin? Yes. He's offered me quite a lot. Mm, a little dangerous, isn't it? Telling me, I mean. No, I trust you. You'd tell McLaughlin when a gold shipment's leaving Deadwood. And you tell Boone May that McLaughlin's going to hold up the stage. I have a feeling that one or the other is going to resent it. <laughs> you have a very funny way of putting things, Mr. Kendall. Why don't you tell me your first name? It's Jeremy. Jeremy Bryan. They're nice names. You make them sound so very correct. Just as you are, Mr. Kendall. <laughs> I'm sorry. If I asked you to come with me, join my establishment, what would you say? I'm not a particularly good gambler. I could teach you. If I were to ask you to leave your establishment, come with me, what would you say? <laughs> You're a most impractical man. I should be quite happy with you for about a month. And I'd leave you because we'd be much too poor. I was kicked out of the army because I was impractical. In a way, it was a very good thing. Why? 
Because I refused to testify in a court-martial proceeding against an officer I barely knew. Well, they were stupid. Not at all. The man was innocent. In Cheyenne, you said there was a woman in England. There was. Uh, she was part of it all. <sighs> You're much too principled for me. <laughs> I don't think so. Why did you kiss me? I wanted to see if you'd stop smiling. I'm not smiling. It had always been a rule of thumb in radio that there should not be any dead air, that people must keep talking. Well, we changed that, not because we deliberately set out to change it, but just because the people we were working with didn't talk all the time. So we had to fill it with sound patterns. We had three sound men for the most part, Bill James, Tom Hanley, Ray Kemper, who contributed more to the show than anybody could ever imagine. After I took her back to the gambling tent in the Badlands, I went to have dinner. What I didn't know then was that at about the same time, two men were riding up to an abandoned shanty in the timber near Deadwood. One of the riders was Billy Mansfield, the other Alexander Caswell. Both were heavily armed. They went into the shanty. A third man was inside waiting for them. He was Archie McLaughlin. How come you're late? We didn't get your message till a short while back. Where's the others? Johnny, Jack Smith. They'll be here, Billy. We making a raid? Yeah. There's a stage to Rapid City tomorrow. She's carrying a box of gold. How much? I don't know, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> that calico queen of yours, she's sure the... <laughs> hey, you shut your mouth, Caswell. She ain't no calico queen. Madam Verdi's a lady, and don't you forget it. Sure, I didn't mean nothing. You didn't mean nothing, Arch. It don't matter. Besides, I didn't get this from her. Johnny Brown heard a shotgun rider talking about it down at Maggie's saloon. Where are we going to take it, Arch? Well, I figure we'll take the coach and hoop up Canyon between here and Rapid City. Well, I know where that is. That's a fine place for it, Arch. We can ride right down before they know what's happening. No sense going back to Deadwood now. Better if nobody sees us till after the job's done. We'll hole up here tonight. <laughs> Nice to see you back, Colonel. Make yourself comfortable. Say, I uh, hope you didn't mind me interrupting your dinner. I'll mind less when you tell me why you did. I uh, hear you've been up in the hills. Look here, May. I got a message to come to your office. You said it was important. Let's get to the point. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Have <clears throat> you seen Madame Verdi tonight? Is that why you asked me to come here? No. no. Of course, I know you've seen her. Uh, she was up to your hotel. You seem to know everything that happens in Deadwood. That's my business. Well? She'd tell you about our deal. She mentioned it. She'd tell you about McLaughlin? No. Uh, no. I guess she wouldn't. Uh, since you've been gone, them two is quite a something in Deadwood. What do you mean? Well, I guess you ain't here. 
A night she opened uh, right after you left. Archie McLaughlin got to playing 21 with her. I guess he wasn't up to keeping his mind on the cards because he lost his last dollar. Uh, he's a good-looking young cuss, and I seen her give him a little extra smile. It was kind of late. She offered to stake him to breakfast. I'm not particularly interested in all this. I reckon you will be. Now, Archie thanks her real polite and says he's about due for a turn of luck, and when it comes his way, he'll come back and buy her breakfast. A few days later, he does come back, and he's got his pockets full of gold. They went out for breakfast. Been going out ever since. Go on. Now, Madam Verdi, she knows for sure who he is and what he is. Ain't no mistake about that. I'm figuring she didn't take my advice about making deals with those boys, Savvy. Especially McLaughlin. What's all this got to do with me? You didn't know about them. No. Listen, Kendall. I'm a peace officer. It's same as any other job, except more so, maybe. I got to know what goes on, Savvy. Well, she's told me, uh... Stage is going to be robbed tomorrow night somewhere twixt here and Rapid City. She say anything about that to you? No, 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 no. Why should she? I don't know. Is that all? I reckon you know now she's uh, sweet on McLaughlin, don't you? <laughs> Good night, Mr. May. She says she don't know uh, who's going to do the holdup. Now, if she's double-crossing me, you tell her... Bell, over here. Hello. Bell, I've just seen Boone May, and he suggests that you don't double-cross him. I think he's talking about McLaughlin. He told you? About Archie? About me? Yes. I suppose I should apologize to no, him. No, there's no need to. But if you really care about him, I think you'd better start playing straight with Boone May. What do you mean? The hold-up you told him about. He suspects something. What? I don't know. Perhaps that you and McLaughlin are working together. Oh, no, that's not so. I don't know who's doing the holdup, but it isn't Arch. You would have told me. <laughs> Honor among thieves. You know, if Mr. May knew what you were doing... He'd probably have me hanged. Why'd you come here to warn me? Why shouldn't I? I'll be writing about you. Oh. Well, there's one thing I'd like to know. Are you very much in love with McLaughlin? I don't know. Perhaps in a way that doesn't mean anything to you. I can't explain. Just be careful. I have to get back to my table now. There's money waiting to be won. The following night, I accompanied Boone May on the stagecoach, carrying $20,000 in gold bound for Rapid City. With us were five special deputies. What happened when we were stopped by McLaughlin and his men, I shall report in my next dispatch to the London Times. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. For radio directors like Gunsmoke's Norman MacDonald, even the late 1950s offered something they loved. I would truly enjoy going back to the old days of being completely involved in radio. There was a marvelous feeling of going home after you'd 
finished your day's work and indeed finished your program and sitting down and saying, boy, I liked what happened today. I liked the show we did. I feel good about it. And being able to sit there sometimes, if it was tape delay or something, and hear your own show was a great sense of satisfaction. The beauty, of course, was that the next morning you got up and started on the script for the following day or two days later or five days later, and you were starting a whole new world all over again, which you wanted to deliver in three days and had to be confined to 29 minutes and 30 seconds. And this, I think, was the beauty of radio. Each member of the audience, however big or however small, had a chance to exercise his own imagination and to draw his own pictures and add it to what he heard. Bill Robeson said that America may well have forgotten how to listen. And I think this might well be true. So many of us are apt to sit in front of the television set. Whether we really absorb anything or not, I don't know. We sit and we watch in radio, which has been called the theater of the mind. Your imagination worked and drew for you whatever pictures you wanted. The theater of the mind's been dark for nearly 15 years now, and I think perhaps it's time somebody turned the lights up again. It's a never-ending source of amazement to me what a woman will do for or to a man. This happened in Dakota Territory. Frontier Gentlemen. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. In just a moment, we will bring you this latest report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Not just a news program, but a clever, concise focus on the world tonight, seven nights a week on CBS Radio. Listen to The World Tonight, reporting odd, stimulating, and important sidelights to the day's events. Hear CBS News round up the stories behind the news, frequently in the voices of the newsmakers themselves. Seven nights a week on most of these stations, CBS Radio presents The World Tonight. Now, starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall. Frontier Gentlemen. The lady I knew as Belle Siddons had brought her gambling establishment to Deadwood. And as I had reason to know, where went Miss Siddons, so followed trouble. This remarkable and very pretty woman had once been a Confederate spy... In the years following the war, she had married, been widowed, and after spending a short time as a tutor at the Red Cloud Indian Agency, she drifted into gambling, becoming one of the most skillful 21 dealers in the West. Belle, or Madame Verdi, as she called herself in Deadwood, was playing a very dangerous game. This was impressed upon me by a peace officer named Boone May. I was sitting in his office the morning after he had learned of a planned stagecoach holdup. You get to talk to Madame Verdi last night, Kendall? I spoke to her. She say anything? About what? 
You know about what? Stage holdup is supposed to be on for tonight. Well, she knows there's going to be one, that's all. And what'd she say about McLaughlin? Nothing much. I told her you thought they were planning the robbery together. What'd she say? She laughed. Huh? That's so. Then she said she'd told you the truth. No, one of her casemen had heard a gold shipment was going to be stopped between here and Rapid City. She doesn't know who's going to do it. The way things are between her and McLaughlin, I wouldn't figure her square. Would you? If she's really in love with him, I don't imagine she'd want to see him caught. I'm going to find out. That's for sure. How? Well, I'll tell you, Kendall. It wouldn't be smart me getting mouthy about what I aim to do until it's time to do it. You being a newspaper feller and all... You savvy? <laughs> you afraid I'll tell Madame Verdi? Well, now, I ain't exactly afraid, but I ain't over-anxious neither. See, I've been living in Deadwood long enough to know it ain't smart to put trust in any man or woman. Maybe that's how come I'm still living. And yeah, I suppose in your job it's the safest way. Yeah, that's right. What about this Archie McLaughlin? You haven't met him? No. Well, he's real polite. Good-natured young feller. At least ways, that's the way you figure him to be. Then you find out he fought with Quantrell's raiders on the Kansas border in the war. I ain't kept track of his killing since then, but they say there's uh, four or more he shot down here and other places. He's a road agent, spends most of what he steals gambling. But if you know his record, why haven't you arrested him? Well, I know what I hear tell. I ain't got proof. That's what I need. Maybe tonight that's what I'm going to get. I'd like to be there when you do. Yeah, I guess you ain't got a good feeling toward him at that, him taking Madame Verdi from you. <laughs> you insist there's a great romance between the lady and me, don't you? I heard things was a simmer. Well, false rumor. How come you're so interested in McLaughlin, then? That's part of my job. I'm a newspaper correspondent, remember? Yeah. All right, Kendall, you come back here this evening and say about six o'clock, maybe I'll have something for you to write about in that London paper of yours. I spent the rest of the day in my hotel room sorting out notes and preparing outlines of future articles. At six o'clock, precisely, I returned to Boone May's office. He was buckling on a gun belt, smiled at me in his mirthless way as I walked in. You all set, huh? Yes, you seen the madam again? No. I know you ain't. I had somebody watching just in case. <laughs> Javert. Huh? A French policeman. man by the name of Victor Hugo wrote about him. You have a great deal in common. Oh. You got a gun? Yes. That's fine. Come on. Where are we going? Well, down to the stage station. Going to take a little trip. reached the station, I saw a coach with five heavily armed men standing near it. Each carried a rifle and holstered guns. Boone May nodded to them. All set, boys? This fellow's Kendall. He's riding with us to see the fun. Gold come in yet? We already loaded it, Boone. All right, let's get going, then. Sam, you drive. Uh, Davenport, you ride shotgun. The rest of us be inside. Go ahead, Kendall, after you. All right, you are. 
Oh. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, it's kind of tight squeeze to all the artillery. Uh, come on, boys. Get the rifles on the floor. We won't have no use for them for a while. Uh, let's go, Sam. You think it's safe to tell me about it now? Sure. No harm now. Uh, this here is a regular coach for Rapid City. Instead of the company driver and guards, these are my men. Yes, I got that. Then. Oh, uh, see that box on the seat? Uh, yes. Fifty thousand in gold. Uh, that's what we're going to be stopped for. Ah. Don't mind a little shooting, do you? I don't imagine I'll have much choice, will I? That's a human fact. Oh, say, uh, uh, Kendall, that there French fella, the law dog. Javert? Yeah. Uh, was he a good one? I suppose in some ways you could say he was. Gunslinger? No. He didn't have to be. Uh, we may have a fairish long ride. Uh, how's about you tell me more about it? Uh, uh, how'd you say that name again? Javert. Javert. In a moment, we return to Frontier, gentlemen. Say, Jake, how much further we got to go? I'm about wasted away to nothing with hunger. Howdy, Sheriff. Wait, Jake, that blood on the bench, Mr. Sutcliffe. Blood. I know in my heart that he's innocent, and that someone is framing him for murder in these payroll robberies. It's Western audio drama at its finest. I got word from my contact at the bank in Prickly Pear that the payroll's going to be released Thursday. Slim Sutcliffe, he's the owner of the D-Bar-D, will have at least three men on that job. Return with us to Pioneer Days in the wild and woolly Arizona Territory. The story of a man whose mission was to tame the Old West. Jake Dimes, Range Detective. Subscribe to Narada Radio Company at iTunes and all fine podcast providers. We're just about to... Jake, the sun's going down. Are you going to kiss her or ain't you? Huh? On NBC, there was a show called Homicidal Kane. And it was written by a guy who used a pen in one hand and a bottle in the other. And, and it was due on the air at 3.15 in the afternoon. By 3.10, he had maybe six of the eight pages written. And while the show was on the air, he'd be typing away... They'd be rushing the carbons and the originals into the studio. And he never missed closing a show. He always managed to get the last page in in time. Uh, what do you do with the bottle? Well, I, I think... Maybe uh, the show and the bottle finished about yeah. simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> I'll thanks, be done. Thanks for your call this Fascinating evening. Fascinating story. Thank you so much. Are on its way. Don't you know that it's worth every treasure on earth? 
Although by 1958 Vic Perrin was spending much of his professional time in other mediums, radio offered the Hollywood actors who'd grown up in the business a different level of camaraderie. I enjoyed the people in it, too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. In the beginning, there were, oh, I think, 1,500 members of AFRA, then mm -hmm. AFRA. Uh, they figured about 400, 450 did practically all of the work. Mm -hmm. Of course, that wasn't very many, and we spent a great deal of time together, and that was before the days of tape, or even on tape, lots of times you spent many hours together. But we would have a break, we didn't have long enough to go anywhere, and we got to know each other very, very well, and our problems, they were like family. We'd hear about somebody who was having kind of a rough time, we'd go to one of the other producers and say, gee, Dick's having a hard time paying his rent, you think there's anything for him next week? And They'd get behind him and he'd be working. So you'd all act as perhaps an agent for someone yeah, else? Yeah, for everybody on. else. It really is a nice family kind it of was, relationship. It was. It was. We were very close and very loving, mm -hmm. very caring. A great many were successful. Their names included Parley Bear, Jeff Chandler, Virginia Gregg, Peggy Weber, Hans Conried, Forrest Lewis, Jeanette Nolan, Byron Kane, Russell Thorson, Lorene Tuttle, Lillian Byeth, Howard McNear, Jack Moyles, William Conrad, Georgia Ellis, Alan Reed, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis. Still many more were forgotten. Shirley, during the break, we were talking a little bit about when mishaps would happen or people wouldn't be around, that you always had a backup handy. The actors in the hallways. The actors lined up in the hallways. They were always two or three or four sitting, waiting for something to happen. Either that or just coffee class. Or time. just, yeah, right, <laughs> visiting with visiting, one another. Telling about what they could have been. Exactly. <laughs> and suddenly the big break happens and they are. Knowing right? each other. I mean, it was heaven what they had done in their past. One, I'll never forget, was Dickie Ryan. Did you oh, know Dickie? Oh, God, of course. Sweet, darling man. I tell you, Out of Audible. He came That's out of right. Audible. And yeah. most of them did, mm -hmm. a lot of them. Right. But in the early days, he would sit in the lobby at CBS. And, you know, there were several times when he really did get a chance to go in and do something mm -hmm. because an actor didn't show up. So it worked. I mean, it paid off. Well, it was also good because the telephones which go to your exchange, go to your answering service, <laughs> always kept a phone there. <laughs> That's right. And a lot of actors who didn't work but who wanted people to think they were working would run to the phone and pick the phone up and say anything for him, whatever their name was, and then they would say, really? What time? And they'd pull out a piece of paper right. and a, or a pad and a pen or a pencil and write it down. At what time? Which studio? Oh, okay, I'll be right there. <laughs> so it looked really good. Looked they official. Used, it's the same thing as the people who used to go into the Brown Derby and get themselves paged Page. in case exactly. there was right. anybody there who didn't know they were still around. Or right? found an old script and or, shoved it right, in their pocket. Exactly. <laughs> Right. Always walked around with a script I, in the pocket. I always remember Frank Nelson. He always had four or five scripts sticking out of his pockets. And they you were knew going, he was his working. Were, his were legitimate. His were legitimate. Yeah. yeah. It may appear odd, but at the time there seemed nothing particularly strange about recounting a condensation of Hugo's Les Miserables to Boone May and his deputies. I suppose I'm becoming used to the peculiarities of my life in the West. One accepts anything, 
Even the gleam in a peace officer's eye as he compares himself to the dedicated bloodhound, Javert. May's deputies listened, respectful, silent. I finished the story. Well, now, I'd say that was a man who believed in the law. Uh, wouldn't you say that, boys? Yes, sir. Oh, I like that word you used, Kettle. Dedicated. That there's a fine word. What's the matter, Sam? Cottonwood tree falling across the road. All right, stay where you are, Sam. Might be natural, might not. Up with him. Get down off the coach, both of you. Four or five of them. Passengers, come on, outside. Me and Kennel go outside as soon as we hit the ground. You three start shooting. All right, come on, Kennel. When I tell you to you drop, you I do said, it quickly. You won't have no back left your head. All right. Hold on to them horses. Right. Billy, you cover the passengers. Yeah, Archie McLaughlin. Well, if it ain't Boone May. Don't you do it! For about five seconds, the moonlit clearing thundered to the sound of gunfire. And then it was all over. Lying on the ground was the man named Caswell, a bullet through his head. The four other hold-up men were racing away on their horses. One we could see had been wounded as he held desperately to the horn of his saddle. We took Caswell's body back with us to Deadwood, and then Boone May suggested a drink. He led me to a saloon which stood a few doors away from Madame Verdi's gambling tent. You know why we come to this place, Kendall? I have a faint idea. I want to see the madam's face when I tell her. Well, what makes you think she'll come here? Oh, she will. Two of the boys are going to bring her in. Are you arresting her? Not right now. I just want to see her face. Uh, maybe it'll tell me if she needs a resting. You still think she knew about the holdup? She might. Oh, there she is. I'll, I'll be obliged you don't say nothing outside of Hello Candle. I'll take it as real unfriendly if you do, Savvy. Well, perhaps I better go. No such thing. Well, now, Madam Verdi, this is sure a pleasure. Is it? Good evening, Mr. Kendall. Madam Verdi? Am I under arrest, Mr. May? Of course you ain't. These two men didn't give me much choice. I had to leave my table. There's a big game going on. Well, then, madam, you better get right back to it. There was nothing important I had to say. I'll see you in the morning. If it was so unimportant, why did you have me brought here? Well, I never said to the boys to bring you, madam. I told them to ask you, polite. I surely do apologize for the inconvenience. Oh, uh, uh, by the way... There'll be some company money at the office for you tomorrow. Yeah, that holdup you told us about. You was right. They tried it a while back, and we plugged one for good. Another's bad hurt. Three got away. We'll get them. Who were they? Archie McLaughlin and some of his boys. Oh. Yeah. Well, madam, like I said, I sure am sorry for the trouble getting you over here. That's all right, Mr. May. I understand why you did. Good evening. Mm -hmm. Good evening, Mr. Kendall. Uh, I'll walk back with you to your place if you don't mind. Not at all. Uh, you have no objections. Oh, shucks, no, you go right ahead. Oh, I drop around in the morning, Kendall. Uh, maybe I'll have some more news for you. Who was it? Who was killed? A man named Caswell. 
I don't think it was McLaughlin who was hurt, but I'm not certain. May wanted to find out what I knew about it. That's why he didn't tell me who the dead man was, isn't it? That mostly, I think. And he enjoyed watching me. I expect so. Were you there during the holdup? Yes. Archie's such a fool. Why didn't he tell me? You didn't know he was going to do it? Of course not. Well, Boone May will be watching you now, you know that. He'll expect you to get in touch with McLaughlin or McLaughlin to try to reach you. Shall you be watching me too? Is that why you came with me? You think I'm on Boone May's side? I've known newspaper men before. The story's the important thing, isn't it? Not to that extent. I have to get back now. <laughs> Money waiting to be won? Yes. Before you go, may I ask you something? You're not angry with me about Archie? No. Not jealous? No. Most men would be. I know, but I have no reason. It was just something that was rather nice and right between us. That's all. Will you let me know if you'll hear anything about him? Yes. <laughs> you know, I'd be much wiser to fall in love with a man like you. Forces are at work. Who are the central figures? How do the people involved? Vic Perrin and Harry Bartell were both featured in these episodes. Speaking of which, Harry and I frequently were twin villains on a show. We never knew whether Harry was going to be the high voiced villain or the low voiced <laughs> Whoever got the first line had his choice. <laughs> the six of us are here have worked together on hundreds, perhaps thousands of occasions. And there was always something, to me anyway, that was rather special about CBS and CBS Productions. For the next few days, I saw Bell Siddons from time to time, but never for more than a few minutes, and then it was usually on the street or in her gambling establishment. If Boone May expected me to be the unwitting liaison between Bell and Archie McLaughlin, he must have been disappointed. There had been no word concerning McLaughlin or his companions. Then, one night, I had just returned to my hotel room. Yes? Get inside. Don't make no noise, mister. You carrying a gun? Well, it, it's hanging up over there. Now sit down. All right. I'll tell you the straight of it. My name's Billy Mansfield. Oh. J.B. I know you're Kendall. Archie says you know Madame Verdi. Archie? McLaughlin? Yeah, he sent me to find her. I think one of Boone May's boys spotted me when I came into town. I figured if I couldn't get through to the madam, you would. Well, what makes you think that? Archie says you're a friend of Madame Verdi's, that's why. Oh. I recognize you now. You were with McLaughlin in that holdup, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Listen, one of the boys, John Brown, he's like to cash in his chips any minute. One of the shots got him plumb through the belly. Has he had a doctor? Ain't no doctor we could trust around. Archie wants the madam to come and do something. What could she do? Get the bullet out. Archie says she knows about doctoring. You can't ask her to do that. Not a man with a bullet in his stomach. He needs a doctor. Mister, I ain't here to argue with you. Will you get the message to the madam? Supposing I go to Boone May. Ain't no skin off my saddle if you do. I won't be here when you get back. Besides, you being a friend of madam, you wouldn't want to see her get in no trouble. 
What's the message? Tell her to come to the place she and Archie went. The start of the timber road. She'll know where it is. If she ain't alone, one of us will get her before they get us. Archie didn't say that, but I'm saying it, Kendall. Supposing I come with her? That's your business. When is she supposed to go? Tonight. Soon as she can. We'll be waiting. You'll be taking a big risk, Belle. If Boone May finds out, you know it'll happen. I've got to go. Why? It's not McLaughlin. He's not been wounded. No. But he asked me to. That's enough. All right. I'll come with you. No. Yes. I'll be safe. I'm sure you will. But if Boone May sees you ride out alone, he may be suspicious. If we go together, let him think what he wants. You don't have to do that for McLaughlin. I'm not. I'm doing it for myself. I want to write the story. Belle Siddons and I drove out of Deadwood in a buckboard. And to any casual or inquisitive onlooker, we had all the appearances of a romantic couple enjoying a midnight drive. As far as I could tell, we weren't following. This is it. Who? Who? You better go back. Leave me alone. I'll get back to Deadwood, all right. No, I'd rather not. You've done enough? I've told you, Belle. This is the kind of thing that earns me a living. Besides, I'm rather curious to meet your Archie McLaughlin. Belle? Yes? Who's that with you? Mr. Kendall. Were you followed? I don't think so. This is McLaughlin, Kendall. I thank you for what you've done. Now you better get on back to Deadwood. You trusted me to get the message through for you. Why not let me stay? I'll see she gets back safely. You come into the timber with us, you take your own chances of getting out. I ain't sitting to argue. Follow me up the road. We drove along the diminishing road for 15 minutes until it became nothing more than a deep, rutted trail and then was too narrow for our buckboard. McLaughlin swung Bell Siddons onto his horse. I followed behind. Another five minutes took us to a ramshackle shanty deep in the woods. A dim glow shone from inside. Now she's here, boys. Who's the fella? Name of Kendall. I told you he said he'd come. Don't give up easy, does he? Ain't nothing you can do. Better to put him out of his misery. Let me see. Sure looks ugly, don't it? Mm. Can you do anything? I don't know. How long's it been? Ten days. Well, I can't make him any worse than he is. You could kill him. He should have been dead days ago. Archie, find me a piece of wire. I've got to get the bullet out. Yeah. Jack, Billy, take a look around. Have you ever done this before? No. But I studied dissection with my husband. Uh, I've taken bullets out, but not like that. I'm afraid I'll be no help. Mm. Mm. Bring the lamp over here, will you? Right. Put it on the floor here. Yeah. I'd rather operate on that table, but I'm afraid to move him. What do you think? I'd better do it here. I found the wire. Give it to Mr. Kendall. Oh. Hold it over the flame. All right. Belle Siddons, ex-Confederate spy, gambler, doctor's wife. With that single piece of wire, she probed the terrible wound and extracted the bullet. And the man lived. She smiled at me, at McLaughlin. Now I think I'd better go, Archie. Yeah. Uh, 
You think he'll make it? He's got a chance. Hey, wait a minute. You ain't thinking of having her and this Kendall fella going back to Deadwood, are you? Well, why not? Why not? So they can tell Boone May where we're hiding at? Well, Madame Verdi is hardly likely to. And I have no reason to. I'm not a lawman. I ain't for letting him go, Arch. Jack's right. It ain't safe. Now, look, she came as a favor to me. A favor to Johnny. And he's still alive, ain't he? Don't matter. She'll tell or he will. I say plug him now. Uh, I'd rather you didn't, gentlemen. Oh, put away your gun, Kendall. There's no call for shooting. Leastwise, not between us. I say you and Madam here, you both go. I figure neither one of you will do any talking. Now, ain't that so? You know, Archie. How about you, Kendall? <laughs> I'm rather fond of a lady, too. I don't think I want to see her strung up to a cottonwood limb as an accessory. No, I won't do any talking. Hey, you hear that, Jack? Billy? Now we're going to let him out of here, quiet and peaceable. Any killing to be done, you'll have to draw on me. Will I see you again, Archie? Sure you will, honey. Don't you worry. I'll be around real soon. Old Johnny there, he can't thank you yet, but I sure do. And one of these days, I'll prove it. So long, honey. I drove Bell Siddons back to Deadwood. Our escapade had apparently gone unnoticed, which was just as well, because a rather unusual message awaited me at my hotel, which I shall write about in my next report to the London Times. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. We probably went on the air with less formal rehearsal than most shows. It was all very casual. You'd come in at whatever the hour was, 9.30 or 10 in the morning, but you didn't settle down to work until about 11.15 or 11.30. Almost without exception, everybody had become so confident with that entire milieu, with the genre that, you know, we, there was very little that you, we paused for. It was rare. You know, once in a while, I remember there was a... We had a two-character show called The Long Ride Back that I played with Bill. Nobody else on the show. Howard wasn't there. Parley wasn't there. It was simply just really a two-character job. It became a film later on, but the show itself... That, I remember, we paused and thought heavy and hard all of us, because that show did not feel as though it was going to play well. It began to get a little tedious. It began to get... Uh, you could see the pauses coming. You could see the structure. You know, it began to get creaky. But most of the time, that was not necessary. Nobody ever did any heavy breathing. And it was fun and games. Yeah. Really fun and games. Although Lawrence Dobkin is referencing an episode of Gunsmoke entitled The Ride Back, the show was significant because it was written by Anthony Ellis. William Conrad later semi-reprised his role as a sheriff when The Ride Back was turned into a film starring Anthony Quinn in 1957. In the September 1st, 1958 issue of Broadcasting Magazine, WCBS Radio in New York took out a local ad touting their station, 
as having the city's most persuasive radio salesman. They also hailed their star personalities like Jack Sterling, Lanny Ross, Jim Lowe, Martha Wright, and Galen Drake. More and more network programming was being left to the local stations. William N. Robeson remembered that time. The American people got a new toy. The men who owned the toy knew it was going to cost a great deal of money. And so they phased out radio. I told you earlier the story of the $80 savings they would make by moving suspense to New York. This is, they've got down to that. It got down from a 13-piece orchestra, an 11-piece orchestra, an 8-piece orchestra, to a, a trio, and finally to the organ. So it was that kind of attrition that occurred. And they killed it because you can spin records and you have a disc jockey, or you can automate the whole day's programming. And you have a newsman and a disc jockey, and you operate. Because people went home and looked at their new toy. They weren't listening to radio. And now, as I think I said, you have a generation of people who don't know how to listen, who must have a picture to bolster up there. And they, they miss the beauty of the human voice, which is something I think you always... Uh, well, they miss the beauty of their own imaginations. It's too much effort to think. When that tube is up there, you don't have to think at all. You just sit there and eat that stuff and drink that beer and, and get fat. But, you know, we're never going to pull those men off the moon. No, we got to go now to Mars. I don't know why. You know, you kill a lot of men that way eventually. But once you've made that step, you can't go back. You made the step to television, you can't go back to radio. A lot of us old poops will talk of, as we're talking now, but my 10-year-old son couldn't care less about that. At Little Cottonwood Creek, I saw a man whose life wasn't worth $10,000. Not even to himself. Frontier Gentlemen. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. In just a moment, we will bring you this latest report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Do you like color in your news? Do you want the sidelights and the inside stories on the day's headlines? Then the program for you is The World Tonight, broadcast seven nights a week on most of the CBS radio stations. The World Tonight is the program that gives you the plus features in the news, the inside stories, the interesting interviews with personalities in the news, and the vital record testimony from important hearings and investigations. <laughs> Starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. It has been my intention to send these reports to the London Times in normal sequence. I find, however, that certain incidents take precedence over others. Therefore, I shall postpone writing of several unusual occurrences which took place in Dakota Territory in order to speak of the final chapter in the matter of Belle Siddons 
alias Madame Verdi, Archie McLaughlin, and Boone May. It began about a month after McLaughlin and his band had attempted a hold-up on a stagecoach. Boone May was a peace officer in Deadwood, one of the most tenacious men I have ever met. He was determined to capture McLaughlin dead or alive, and I knew that he suspected Bell Siddons of being in partnership with the wanted man. The fact that I was well acquainted with the lady put me under the same shadow of suspicion. I had met Miss Siddons for lunch in Deadwood House, a comparatively respectable eating place. I thought she looked rather pale, tired. Have you heard from Boone May? In the past couple of days, no. I wondered. What's the matter, Belle? Nothing. McLaughlin? I don't know why I should care. It makes no sense. Have you heard from him? No. Do you know if he's still holding out in the timber? I don't know. And you're worried? Yes. He's not a good man. Feeling this way about him, I know it'll only cause me unhappiness. But you love him? I suppose I do. Do you think he loves you? In his way. Is that enough? If I could be with him, it would be. Why don't you go to him? No. Boone May is having me watched. I took the chance once, not again. Hmm. Hasn't McLaughlin tried to reach you? Sent a message? Two weeks ago. A note. Said he'd meet me in San Francisco. A place we talked about. Hmm. Perhaps he's gone then. I don't know. That's what I'm afraid of. And I don't know what to do, whether to go. I hate this. Stupidity behaving like a schoolgirl. First love, it's nonsense. Is it? It's interfering with my work. To be a good gambler, one must be able to think clearly. I can't. <laughs> Perhaps this is the time I should play 21 with you. Jeremy, what do you think I should do? Um, at this moment, look pleasant and unworried. Hmm? Good afternoon, madam. Candle, I've been looking for you. And will you sit down, Mr. May? Well, now, thank you. Got a piece of news for you, Kendall. Uh, we got one of the fellers was with McLaughlin night of the holdup. Oh, which one? Brown. Johnny Brown. Silly son of a gun. I <laughs> beg your pardon, ma'am. He comes waltzing into town, goes down to Maggie's place, and one of my boys sees him and picks him up. Uh, what about McLaughlin? Oh, well, we got out of Johnny Boy, found out where they was holed up, went out to fetch him, but they already hightailed it out of there. You see, there's McLaughlin and Smith and Billy Mansfield. Any idea where they've gone? Not yet a while, but I'll get them. Oh, you wouldn't have heard any talk around, would you, madam? No. Why should I? Well, now I'll tell you why, ma'am. It seems that Johnny Brown was night a sacking his saddle a month back when a lady comes along and digs a hunk of lead out of him. Uh, Johnny Brown says the lady was you. He's a liar. Well, now, madam, right now it'd be his word against yours, and... Well, I ain't so sure which one to stand up in trial. I don't see much sense in arresting you for a merciful act that you've done. But I could for not informing the law where a wanted man was hiding out. The man's a liar. I've never even heard of him. Now, he says different. But it ain't worth arguing. Now, now this Johnny Brown, he done a lot of talking. And he figures McLaughlin's gone to pick up the buried loot he's been collecting. And he'll be heading for San Francisco. Johnny says he's got a lady friend in San Francisco. You ever hear tell of such a thing, madam? Mr. McLaughlin never confided in me to that extent. Well, now, I thought maybe he had, you and him being kind of close. W what do you think, Kendall? 
I don't. Of course, now, maybe McLaughlin's still around, uh, waiting for a chance to see you, madam, before he goes. You know, I'd surely take it as a kindness if you'd tell me uh, if and he shows up. But I guess that's asking too much now, isn't it? Mr. Kendall, please excuse me. <laughs> that there was a mean, mad woman. Would you blame her? You know the way she feels about McLaughlin. Well, sure I do. I just want to see how she'd take the news. Oh, you've tried that before. You know what? There's a fact, Kendall. Except in uh, maybe you noticed that I had better luck this time. You still think she's working with McLaughlin? I tell you she's not. Well, she's his woman. She already broke the law going to him when he asked her to take the bullet out of Brown. Mm. You went too, Kendall. You knew? I told you that there Johnny Brown, he talked like a Texan. If I was mine to, you know I could arrest you for that. I imagine you could. I just kind of figured that you and me thought together. Now, why, why didn't you tell me you was with her when she went out to fix up that Johnny Brown? Two reasons. First, I'm a newspaper correspondent. It was my job. I wanted to protect my story. Why ain't your job to protect outlaws? No. But I gave my word. That's the second reason. Two of the men wanted to make trouble. Mm. They weren't going to let us leave the shack that night. Might have come to shoot him. I don't condone what McLaughlin's done. I don't like what he is. But Madame Verdi could have been killed if he hadn't taken our side. That's why I gave my word. You know, that word of yours, that broke the law. It's a good thing, Kendall, that I got a liking for you. Because, you know, if and I didn't, I could have you making hair bridles for the next five years. Long sentence. Yeah. Now, that McLaughlin, he got maybe $10,000 or better cast away somewhere. It's company money he stole in gold. You know, I got to get it back. Now, if I can get the money along with McLaughlin... That there'd be a real good thing. Savvy? I gather that either Madame Verdi or I am supposed to know where it's hidden. Yeah. I don't. Hmm. I doubt whether she does. Well, it might be you don't. I ain't so sure about her. Tell me, was that true about McLaughlin going to San Francisco? That's what Johnny Brown says. Of course, now, I don't figure he'll ever make it. I'd say he's got a fair chance. You sitting here, he's riding west. Uh, Cheyenne... He stopped there for a while. Uh, Johnny Brown was supposed to catch up with him there. And Johnny won't, but I will. Uh, would you mind uh, taking a longish ride with me, Kendall? You see, that way you can do a writing chore and I can keep an eye on you. Uh, you afraid I'd tell her where we're going? Wouldn't you? Probably. That's what I mean. Come on. Amsterdam, Joan Alexander, Bill Balance, and Jim Backus will make up the panel of experts. No, everything sort of just dissolved, just vanished. There was no way that I could have continued on because radio was killed by the business. CBS killed its own child. NBC killed its own child. They all said, we're not going to have radio drama anymore because it is not paying off. In a very conscious way, all radio shows were Cancel. They accompanied me while I went to my hotel to pack my saddlebags. And an hour later, we took the stage out of Deadwood for Cheyenne in Wyoming Territory. 
There were just the two of us, and the only stops we made during the entire journey were for meals or stations at which the horses were changed. But in spite of his precautions, Boone May hadn't counted on Madame Verdi. While we were making our way to Cheyenne, she had not been idle. The lady had heard of our hurried departure from Deadwood and found out the reason for it. A few hours after we left, a deputy peace officer more interested in money than law paid her a visit. His name was Harry Morgan. What's your proposition, ma'am? Would you like to earn a thousand dollars? Yes, ma'am. You've heard of Archie McLaughlin? Yes, ma'am, I've heard. They say he's in Cheyenne. That's what I hear tell. Boone May's going out to pick him up. Yes, ma'am. If he takes him, he'll bring him back to Deadwood. You want that happening? No. A man named Kendall's with May. They left by stage. You reckon they'll come back same way? Yes. You asking a lawman like me to stop that stage and set an outlaw like Archie McLaughlin free? Yes. You know, as them say, McLaughlin's got better than 10,000 heads somewhere. You and him partners? No. Suppose Boone May don't catch McLaughlin. Be a long ride to Cheyenne for Maine to stop an empty stage. 500 for the ride if May hasn't caught him. 2,000 if Archie's in the coach and you get him out. How come you think maybe I won't turn you into Boone May for asking that? Because I know you won't. That's why I asked you to come here. Uh-huh. It'll take some men. Boo might have other guards with him. It's no job for a man alone. Figure four others would be safer along with me. That's up to you. Two thousand don't go far. Split up between five. Twenty-five hundred, then. That sounds fair. When will you leave? As soon as I round up the boys. All right. If you get to him. Tell him to go to San Francisco. Tell him I'll meet him there. Yes, ma'am. One more thing. Do you know what Mr. Kendall looks like? Yes, ma'am. He's that newspaper fellow. I seen him. He's not to be hurt. Well, no telling what happens in a shooting match. Boone May ain't likely to give up McLaughlin so easy. You, uh, you reckon you better give me some money before I go? The boys will want some. I'll give you 500 now. The rest will be on deposit for you at the bank. Collectible if Archie's free. Uh-huh. I reckon it's better if you give me 2500 now. If I don't get McLaughlin, or if Boone May ain't caught him, why, well, I'll give you back the 2000 I was fain. <laughs> no. You don't trust me? No. <laughs> the way I see, you ain't got no choice. I don't trust you to pay me later, so you got to trust me. You got to if you want your Archie back. Wait here. I'll get your money. <laughs> and I says to her, you got to if you want your Archie back. And she hands over the whole thing, 2500 Now, boys, seems to me we're working mighty cheap to take a chance like getting a prisoner away from Boone May. I ain't all fired anxious to get in a powder-burning contest with Boone. I seen him use artillery. He ain't the fastest, nor he ain't the slowest by long way. Against five of us, Boone May ain't no bigger fool than another man. Besides, we ain't gonna take that big a chance. If he got too many for us, we'll take to the two, let's split the dinero, let it go at that. But 
If we can take He's it. a talk, Morgan. I hear tell Archie's got 10,000 or more here, or maybe carrying on him. Now, that's worth saving any man for. Any man? 10,000. Which, along with his 2,500, makes fair fighting wages. What do you say? Now, wait a minute. How's about Boone May? He recognizes us. He'll be gunning for us. Pinky, wasn't you never a vigilante? Masks. We'll wear masks. Now, you got any more food questions, ask them later. Well, travel light, boys. I'll meet you back here a half hour. These conversations, plans we knew nothing about as our stage rolled on toward Cheyenne. Boone May seemed uncommonly sure about his chances of capturing McLaughlin. At the time, I didn't share his optimism, which, as it turned out, was a mistake on my part. I should have known better than to underestimate his capabilities. Boone May was a very thorough man. A gentleman of sentiment, our man about music, is Mitch Miller on CBS Radio. Sunday evenings, he gathers unto himself a group of show folks of equal sentiment and talent for a bull session on the trade. Mitch and his friends do their talking right before CBS Radio's microphones, where everyone can hear them. Tonight and every Sunday, over most of these stations, get the inside story on show business from The Mitch Miller Show. <laughs> report that Archie McLaughlin and his two companions were captured after a bitter gun battle would make colorful reading, but such was not the case. When we arrived in Cheyenne, the men were already in custody of the Cheyenne Marshal. Boone May had telegraphed ahead, and four hours after receiving a message, McLaughlin, Mansfield, and Smith were arrested while drinking a toast to freedom. They were put in irons. And accompanied by one other Cheyenne peace officer, we started on a return journey by stage to Deadwood. Be passing through Fort Laramie directly. And maybe you boys like to take your last look. I'll be coming this way again. If you do, you're going to be an old, old man, McLaughlin. The charges against you is going to add up the more years than any man's got a right to live. Bet you wish they'd hang us, huh, Boom? Maybe you deserve to, Mansfield, but the law is the law. <laughs> And the law says you're going to stand trial for robbery. You get a fair shake in Deadwood. Robbery ain't a hanging crime like in some places. How come you're along with him, Kendall? I think Mr. May was afraid that Madam Birdie and I would ride to Cheyenne to warn you. How is she? Better than she'll be when she sees you like this. Oh, you've won. You've got your man. Why rub salt in the wound? Hmm. What'd you do with the money you hid, McLaughlin? What money? That 10000 or more. Well, ain't no use playing ignorant. Half of Deadwood knows about that loot. But it'll go easier at the trial if you turn it back to the company. Sorry, Boone. I got all kinds of plans what to do with it. We ain't gonna do you no good in the Husky. What's the matter, Boone? You gonna lose reward money if Archie don't fess up? The law go easier on you. That's what I'm saying. You know, hearing you talk curls my gut, Boone. Ways I don't mind admitting I'm a no-good highline rider. Only difference between us is you hide behind a badge for your kind of steel. You lie, McLaughlin. I never stole in my life. Talk about law. Candle, get this here peace officer to tell you about the times he shut an eye when a gold shipment's been... Candle! Get out of there! 
of that culture will make wolf meat out of you. <laughs> it's a hold up, Boone. <laughs> got you on both sides and behind. Get out, slow hands. Way high, you hear? What's the matter, Boone? Ain't you gonna fight back? Man's a fool to take our more can handle. There's too many of them. Well, I'm right glad to see you, boys. Archie McLaughlin's the name. This here's Boone May, peace officer in Deadwood, taking me and my pals in. You're Boone May, huh? That's right. Thank you. Take your gun. Sure. All right, Boone May, you and the other fella, you stand right there. Driver, stay up on that box. You, McLaughlin, another two. Get over here under the tree. Don't seem like no proper hold up to me. I have an idea it isn't. That's just fine, McLaughlin. Uh, that feller's voice. Now, we ain't gonna waste time. I swear I heard it before. Might be coming along the trail. Couple you boys get that rope over that limb yonder. A uh, necktie mm. party for Boone May? You won't see no weeping from me, mister. You ain't got it straight, McLaughlin. It's like this. We're vigilantes, see? Law and order, that's us. Now, we know all about you. We know what you've done. Why you going back to Deadwood? But we figure it ain't right you should get off without paying for your sins. So, McLaughlin, if you're carrying that $10,000 or whatever, you hand it over right now. I ain't carrying nothing. Boone, may you take it off, then? No, he never had it. Now, look, you want to help the law, that's just fine, Shut but that ain't going to... Boone! Where's your head, McLaughlin? No use asking, mister. Archie, ain't going to do you no good, Dad. Not much sense you fellas getting strung up on kind of him. You won't tell us? We don't know. How's about it, McLaughlin? Go ahead, hang me. I ain't giving you nothing. You figure maybe we don't mean business? You, what's your name? Smith. Jack Smith. You got a prayer? Say it. Archie, tell him. Oh, my God. That's murder. Murder, you can't do that. I done it, Boone May. You won't be next. Now, you see, McLaughlin? Now you know, because you've seen I ain't no flannel mouth. Now I ask you, where's that money head? Oh, go. You back. tell him, Arch. You gotta tell. There's no call for us to get murdered on account of money. What good's it? What good, Arch? Tell him. All right, boy, get the rope around his neck. No. Take that one first. No, Arch, tell him. Ellis, please, it ain't my fault. I tell you. You tell him, McLaughlin. Don't do it. That's a spit you please. wish you had in your throat by and by, Mr. String him up. Go! 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 A moment later, the rope was put around McLaughlin's neck. He didn't fight, only stood there waiting. And then they lynched him. After that, the five masked men rode away. Boone May and I cut down McLaughlin's body and buried him under the tree with Mansfield and Smith. Then we went back to Deadwood. It was early morning when we arrived. I went straight to Belle Siddons. She'd been asleep. Looked very young, fragile. She listened dry-eyed. He didn't tell? No. He should have. I wish he had. It was my fault. I wanted to help him. You knew what was going to happen? Those men? I sent them. I killed him. Please, go away. Yes. I'm sorry.
Tiens-le. You tell her? Yes. Oh, that's good. Oh, I'm glad you did. A fellow like you knows how to do a thing like that. Yes, I'm very good at things like that. Well, how about a drink? I could use one after the ride. No, thanks. Uh, well, I'll see you. Cattle? It, she say anything about where the money was hid? No. Nothing. Yeah. Too bad. So long. In November, the network announced it was dropping Nora Drake, Aragal Sunday, Backstage Wife, The FBI in Peace and War, Indictment, The Galen Drake Show, City Hospital, and Frontier Gentlemen. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Jack Crucian, Gene Lansworth, Harry Bartell, Richard Perkins, and Jack Boyles. The 41st and final episode was a rebroadcast of Random Notes. It aired on November 16, 1958. Today all episodes of Frontier Gentlemen exist in good to great listening quality thanks to transcription. After Frontier Gentlemen came to an end, Tony Ellis shifted to the small screen where he wrote for Zorro, Dick Powell's Zane Grey Theater, The Man from UNCLE, and The Detectives. He was also the producer of a TV version of Michael Shane, and created, wrote, and produced Black Saddle in 1959. However, it was the last regular Western collaboration between the good friends Ellis and Daner. Mr. Ellis passed away in 1967 from cancer at the age of 47. I still think of Tony very often, and I still... <laughs> Boy, I do. I miss that man. He was a great fisherman. My hobby was fishing. And the two of us used to go up, fish trout. He moved up Big Bear, and I'd go up and visit him, and we'd fish by the hour, day after day after day after day. Wonderful man. Paladin. Paladin? Yeah, yeah, he was, he was a pretty good guy. That show really 
came about because of the Dick Boone television show. They decided they wanted to capitalize on the success of that show, the TV show, so they decided to use the same scripts that had been used in the Boone show for the radio show. But unfortunately, they did not work out. So we uh, scrapped the whole thing, and everything that was done on Have Gun, Will Travel on the radio was original. And as far as the character's concerned, what is there to say? But he was a grand and glorious, heroic, magnificent, wonderful, masculine, strong-hearted... And magnificently played. Magnetic, yes. <laughs> character. That's all. When CBS canceled Frontier Gentlemen, they did so with another Western in mind. Have Gun, Will Travel. It took place in 1875. The main character was Paladin, a gun for hire based out of a posh San Francisco hotel. The TV series was in the midst of a successful second season starring Richard Boone. The switch was an attempt to attract radio sponsorship. The idea worked. Seven days after the final episode of Frontier Gentlemen, Have Gun Will Travel debuted over CBS Airwaves with Strange Vendetta. The show aired on Sundays at 6 p.m. in New York and at 7 p.m. in Los Angeles. Starring as Paladin, was John Daner. Sit down, gentlemen, and sit still. I've come to order a coffin for the first one of you who makes a move. Gun Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875. The Carlton Hotel. Headquarters of the man called Paladin. Good evening, Mr. Paladin. Good evening. Oh, here are the paper, Mr. Paladin. Oh, thanks, hey boy. Uh, I... Excuse, please. Must go a lady look for me. Lady? What lady? Mm -hmm. Well, I should say it is a lady. Oh, very sorry. Could not catch ticket to opera. All sold up. Oh, I had so hoped to see tonight's performance. And you still can. I couldn't help overhearing your difficulty. I have an opera box, if you would care to be my guest. Oh, thank you. But we could not presume on your courtesy. Uh, we? Uh, my husband and I, Senor... Paladin. Oh. Now, of course, the invitation extends to him also. We have been looking for you, my dear. Oh, Miguel. Uh, Senor Paladin, this is my husband, Senor Rojas. Senor. Senor. And Dr. Mayhew. Great pleasure, Mr. Paladin. Dr. Mayhew. Senor Paladin has kindly offered us his box at the opera tonight. There were no more tickets. Very kind. Uh, Dr. Mayhew is, of course, included in my invitation. That's very gracious of you, Mr. Paladin. The invitation is accepted? We accept, on the condition that you join us and be our guest for dinner, Mr. Paladin. Is that not correct, my dear? Quite correct, Mr. Paladin. Until this evening, then, buenos dias. Mr. Paladin? Oh, yo, oh, husband, no like you. <laughs> I'm afraid you're right. But then, why should he? 
No one could be more at home with history than Edward R. Murrow. For more than 20 years, Paladin studied at West Point and emerged from the Civil War a mercenary with morals. He announced his services with a simple card. It said, have gun, will travel. Wire Paladin, San Francisco. The only symbol on the card was a white chest knight, a paladin. John Daner approached the radio role as if Boone had never existed. We never really went into depth about Paladin, except that he came out of nowhere. He was the Robin Hood. He righted all evils, protected the poor from the depredations of the wealthy and so forth. He was a rather one-dimensional character, if you want my honest opinion about Paladin. And even on the television show, it had that aspect to it, unlike Gunsmoke, where the characters seemed to be more real. There was fantasy in Paladin, you see. But uh, that didn't take away from the fact that it was a lot of fun to do. Roundup comes your way at breakfast time tomorrow. Doctor, Doctor Mayhew, it's time to wake up. The performance is over. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes, of course. Uh, I'm sorry, Mister Paladin. Opera is not one of my special likes. Uh, uh, which one was this? The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. Oh, oh, oh yes, of course. <laughs> well, at any rate, Don Miguel's wife seems to have enjoyed it. Miss Dona Maria is a remarkable woman, Doctor. Meant to savor and enjoy beautiful things. And I might comment for your particular benefit, Mr. Paladin, that Don Miguel is a remarkable man. Wait a minute. Huh? Oh, what is it? Someone behind the curtain. What? what? Don Miguel! Look out! Don Miguel! Senor Paladin, help him! My husband has been hurt! Please, Dona Maria. Dr. May, you will do all he can. Paladin, he needs treatment at once. We'll have to get him out of here. Yes, any news? No, not yet. We are still waiting. I spoke to the police. There'll be no trouble. It was a clear case of self-defense. By 1960, Have Gun and Gunsmoke were the last dramatic productions being recorded for CBS in Hollywood. Network radio drama was on its last leg. Radio was deserted by its own mother and father. It was left to lie on the doorstep and wither and die. Consciously and willfully. Have Gun Will Travel's final show aired on November 27, 1960. Entitled From Here to Boston, it is regarded as a landmark episode. Excuse me, uh, you finished with breakfast, hey boy, we'll take Dishi away. Oh, yes, we are. Come in. Uh, did you meet my sister? No, sir. 
Hey, boy, isn't it? Lisa. This is my sister, Lavinia Todd Hunter. Oh, uh, hello. How do you do? Uh, was you wrong comfortable last night, Missy Todd Hunter? I was so exhausted from the trip, I hardly noticed. But uh, I do think I'll like the accommodations of the Carlton. I never thought we'd be able to get a, a suite with two bedrooms. It's almost like home. Oh, yes, Missy. Uh, Carlton is a very nice hotel. But it doesn't compare with anything we have in Boston, Lavinia. Oh, of course not, Miles. But I, I'm so surprised they have anything at all in this godforsaken country that I'm overwhelmed. Uh, hey, boy. Uh, Esau. Do you know most of the regular guests who stay here? Oh, Esau, hey, boy, no, many guests. Uh, tell me, do you know a Mr. Paladin? Mr. Oh, Esau. How long has he been living here? Oh, many long time. Could you tell us about him, hey, boy? Oh, yes, ma'am. What does he do? Uh, what does he look like? Is he married? Oh, no, ma'am. No, Miss Paladin, not married. <laughs> My sister and I have heard that he uh, uh, hires his gun, so to speak. Well, Miss Paladin will be happy to tell you what he does. He's a very good friend of Hey Boy. Uh, you like to meet him? No, no, no. We were just curious. We've heard so much about him. Uh, Isa, would there be anything else? No, that'll be all for now. Thank you very much, hey boy. Yes, sir. Miles, why don't you want to meet him? Not just yet, Lavinia. We have to go about this very carefully. Well, we don't have all the time in the world, Miles. I know, I know. But even so, you must have patience. Don't forget that lawyer back in Boston is looking for him. And if we're too patient, he may locate him before we finish what we came out here to do. You don't have to remind me. Just let me do the planning. Uh, all right. Then where do we start, my dear brother? This hay boy said Mr. Paladin was unmarried. More than likely, he would be interested in meeting a beautiful young lady from Boston... Oh, why, thank you, Miles. And then what? Uh, you could entrance him, my dear. Get to know him intimately. Oh. And as soon as we know his weak points and when the time is right, we'll complete our mission. I didn't realize I was going to play such a, an important role. You don't object, do you? Of course not. <laughs> For a hundred thousand dollars, how could I? And besides, he... Um, he may be very enjoyable company while he's still alive. Paladin receives an attorney letter notifying him of a large inheritance. He must travel to Boston to claim it. Your brother was very thoughtful, Lavinia. Meanwhile, he has no idea that his latest romantic interest was not only responsible yes. for his aunt's death, but plans yes, to murder Paladin with the help of her brother. Show his appreciation for all your kindnesses to us. Oh. Uh, this is my second glass, and you've, uh, you've hardly touched yours. Oh, I know. I, I like the aroma more than the taste. Drink up. It warms the blood. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel a little too warm as it is. <laughs> yes, you do seem uncomfortable. Is something wrong? Oh, no. No, I, I I guess it's just the hour. It's getting rather late. We've had a busy day. Yes. 
Now, I wonder who that could be. Excuse me. Miles. Oh, uh, oh Paladin, I... Come I, in. Well, I... I just came by to see if Lavinia was still here. She is? Come in, come in. You see, it was getting so late that I, I, I thought... I didn't realize what time it was, Miles. Oh, she's a big girl, Miles. You don't have to worry about your sister. Well, I wasn't exactly... Oh, I it. must thank you for the brandy, Miles. Uh, won't you join us and have a glass? No, no, but thank you. Nonsense. Sit down. Really, Paladin, I didn't mean to intrude like this. You can stop babbling now, Miles. Get your hands up, Paladin. What? No, Lavinia, don't shoot him. It'll make too much noise. I said get your hands up, Paladin. All right. This is quite a surprise, Lavinia. I didn't know you carried a derringer in your purse. Oh, shut up and keep quiet. Well, Miles, your brandy didn't work. What do we do now? Give me a chance to think. What happened with the brandy? You probably forgot to put the poison in it. Poison? Yes, Paladin. You should have been dead an hour ago. Oh? Well, I, uh... I must have opened the wrong bottle. Uh, the wrong yes. bottle? Yes. Mm -hmm. Hey, boy, brought me a bottle a couple of hours before yours arrived. They were identical. Well, Miles, that's something you didn't think of. Why don't I just shoot him and be done with it? No. No, we'll be caught before we can get out of here. Yes, the shot would wake the hotel, Lavinia. I'd be willing to take the chance. Now, there's no reason why we can't go through with our original plan. Where's the other bottle? Well, look in his liquor cabinet. <laughs> you really wouldn't expect me to drink the brandy now, Lavinia. If you don't, then I'll be forced to shoot you. Either way, I lose, huh? Either way. Then I think I prefer being shot. <laughs> Give me the gun. Miles! Miles, help me! Give it to me. Oh! Right, now, take the gun. Miles! You... You shot me. Miles! He's dead. tell you how much I appreciate you coming all the way over here to Oakland with me. Oh, not often you go on such plenty long trip, Mr. Paladin. Oh. Too bad Missy Wong couldn't get off work and come with us to say goodbye. Yes, she wanted to. Well, maybe it's better she not come. She'd be crying big tears on her boy's shoulder all the way back to the hotel. <laughs> yeah, here you are, Mr. Paladin, right on the spot. Thank you, driver. Uh, here you are. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you need help with those bags? No, hey, boy, and I can handle them. Uh, you will wait for him, won't you? Oh, yes, sir. And see that he gets back to the Carlton? Hey, you count on me, Mr. Pallet. Good. Oh, here. Hey, boy, I'll carry the big one. Oh, please, sir. All right. Let's go. Ah, uh, we want car 14, hey, boy. Well, we, we better hurry, Mr. Paladin. That's all right. 
Yeah, that's my car right over there. What we do with these bags? I put them in the vestibule. The conductor will take care of them for me. Here we are. Peace. Up they go. There we are. That's it. Now, remember, hey, boy, the other trunks are ready to ship. I'll write to you and let you know where to send them. Mr. Paladin, when will you come back? I don't know, hey, boy. All depends on how long it takes me to liquidate my aunt's estate. Several months at least. Then you never know. I may take a liking to Boston and settle down there permanently. It won't be the same Carlton Hotel while you're gone. Oh, now. I've left many times before, hey, boy. We saw, but this time you will not come back, maybe. You never can be sure. Just don't forget me. Keep looking for me. I may be back. Yes, sir. I hope so. Oh, and don't forget to send me the San Francisco papers. I want to be sure and follow Miss Todd Hunter's trial. Oh, what do you think they do with her? Send her to jail for a few years. Well, you better go, Miss Abadie. Yes. Now, um, hey, boy, look, if, if you and Miss Wong decide to get married... Give me plenty of notice. I will be back for that. Oh, uh, uh, we, we write you. I'll uh, let you know. All right. Well, goodbye, hey boy. Goodbye, Mr. Paladin. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye, Mr. Paladin. Have Gun Will Travel closed with no mention in the trade columns. All remaining radio dramas, with the exception of Gunsmoke, were now produced in New York. It was tricky for those of us who were regulars on Gunsmoke, or more or less regulars on Gunsmoke. We had the last surviving live radio show for a long time. We were the only radio show still going. Everything else had dried up and gone. At least... I've forgotten now whether it was two years or three after Gunsmoke became a television series. And we were still doing the radio show. You said a live radio show. It was on tape. Well, we did it on tape. But, I mean, but it was still... We did it as though it were live. Yeah. Gunsmoke finally went off the air on June 18th, 1961. There was a thing that was happening at that time, which I don't know whether anybody knows about, and maybe not even you, but at that time, stereo was just beginning to show its head. Now, Have Gun Will Travel, Gun Smoke, the radio shows that did exist at that time, were getting ready to produce radio drama in stereo. But... Because the decision had been made to uh, get rid of radio drama, that too, naturally, disappeared because the whole concept of radio drama was destroyed. And along with it, any new idea that might be uh, in uh, waiting for us. And that was stereo. It's a pity. I like it. Stereo, drama, radio, stereo would be fantastic. On September 30th, 1962, CBS canceled Johnny Dollar and Suspense. Jack Johnstone wrote both final episodes. Oh, I don't know. For the last year, I only wrote it. I, they moved production out of Hollywood entirely. I wrote the last year of it. As a matter of fact, the last Johnny Dollar and the last Suspense occurred on the same night. 
one followed the other. And the Johnny Dollar was written by Jack Johnstone, and the suspense was written by Jonathan Bundy. Bundy was my wife's name. Mm. Quite honestly, I have to be honest about it, I thought New York production of those shows was pretty bad compared with our Hollywood standards during that last year when production of both those shows was done in New York. CBS would have no new dramas in its programming block until 1974. The silver lining is, because shows like Frontier Gentlemen, Gunsmoke, and Have Gun Will Travel aired long after transcription of network shows became widespread. Many episodes exist today in good to master quality. I loved him. Oh. Here I am explaining things again, I suppose, because they sound so foolish. Once, we both loved each other. Very much. But we kicked it away. We just didn't get along. He was out spending his money on other people, and I was taking up this pastime. Can you tell when I've had too much? No. Thank you. Thank you awfully. Oh, Hugh. Elizabeth. Johnny, this is Hugh Bryan. This is Mr. Dollar, Hugh. Hello, Mr. Dollar. How's your drink, Liz? Fine. Now tell me again, who is this? This is Mr. Dollar. What's your business, Mr. Dollar? I haven't seen you around before. Obviously, you just met Miss Ridden, or you would never, never start drinking with her. I wouldn't. No. That's true, Liz, isn't it? He was a friend of John's, Hugh. Well, that's nice. I don't think I ever heard him mention your name. I was a friend of his, too. As a matter of fact, his attorney. Hugh, you don't have to do this and in front of And since John me. is no longer here, I've undertaken to look after some of the problems he left behind him, as an old friend would. Elizabeth, say goodnight to Mr. Dollar. Now, look here, Hugh. Say goodnight Hugh, to him. He's just leaving. Maybe it's better right now, Johnny. Good night. Do you want me to leave? She just said it would be better. I'll call you at your hotel. Good night. Good night, mister. No, no, you still have something in your glass. Finish your drink. Okay. An old friend of John's. That's good. Very good. It is? She picked you up in a bar last night. I saw her. I was with her. You never knew John Reardon in your life. You have no business being here, and I don't like cheap opportunists invading her home. Evidently, you can talk to her any way you want to, and she'll take it. Why, I don't know. But don't talk to me that way. I don't have to take anything. You were just leaving, weren't you? I directed in the studio, wearing a pair of earphones with heavy muffs on them so that I couldn't hear any sounds directly. I'm thoroughly convinced it was the only way to direct a radio program for several reasons. It gave you much better control over the whole show. If the show began to run a little slowly, a guy could stand in the control room and wave his arms frantically until some actor looked up, or maybe all of them, then they all sped up, and then the next signal was... <laughs> you see. Whereas in the studio, right next to the actors, I could tell one actor to speed up just a little bit, and another one perhaps even to slow down. If an actor was too close to Mike, I could push him back gently or move him in. 
sound effect cues were never missed when I was in the studio. As a matter of fact, I preferred directing on CBS over the other networks, simply because of the personnel involved. They were far more interested in, all they gave a hoot about was putting on a good show. Well, you ask me if I'll forget my baby, I guess I will someday. I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. Next time on Breaking Walls, we phone Johnny Dollar for the story behind network radio in late 1955 as told through the eyes of the man with the action-packed expense account. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, Radio Rides the Range, a reference guide to Western drama on the air 1929 through 67 by Jack French and David S. Siegel, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from U.S. Radio February 1958 and Broadcasting Magazine February 10th and December 8th, 1958. On the interview front, Harry Bartell, Lillian Bayef, John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Sam Edwards, Virginia Gregg, Jack Johnstone, and Vic Perrin were with Spurdvac, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama Variety and Comedy. For more information, please go to spurvac.com. Virginia Gregg was also with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chat at speakingofradio.com. William Conrad, John Daner, Norman McDonald, and William N. Robeson were with John Hickman. Mr. Hickman was the longtime host of WAMU's Recollections. Today this program is heard each Sunday evening as the big broadcast. For more information, please go to WAMU.org. John Daner and Vic Perrin were also heard with Neil Ross for KMPC in 1982. Vincent Price and William N. Robeson were with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. And Roberta Goodwin was with John Dunning for his 71KN U.S. program from Denver on February 7, 1982. Selected music featured in today's episode was Hog of the Forsaken by Michael Hurley, Ghost Bus Tours by George Fenton for High Spirits, Sligo Creek by Al Petaway and Debbie Smith for Ken Burns' The National Parks, America's Best Idea, Get a Job by The Silhouettes, Someone to Watch Over Me by Rosemary Squires and the Ken Thorne Orchestra, Young at Heart by Frank Sinatra, and Guess Things Happen That Way by Johnny Cash. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, the Mutual Audio Network, and Hey It's Jolly Entertainment. Find them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Haindages, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I've been visiting for almost 20 years. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. 
Breaking Walls Episode 102 will center around the 1955 serialized relaunch of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. We'll hear interviews, notes, and the entire McCormick matter. This episode will be available beginning April 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until April 1st, 2020 and the beginning of spring, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 101, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Every day, I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. You ask me if I'll find another, I don't know, I can't say. I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. God gave me that girl to lean on, then he put me on my own. Heaven help me be a man, have the strength to stand alone. I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't.